Welcome to episode 6 of the Narrative Wargamer podcast, a non-competitive 40k podcast with a focus on fun and narrative gameplay, as well as hobby news and our latest hobby projects. I am Tony Rhodes, and tonight I am joined by Chris Grimm. Dude, how are you? <laughs> I'm good, how are you? I am absolutely fantastic, dude. Every day is a good day if you make it one, and I have made it one by hobbying up for most of the day and having a natter with yourself. <laughs> great, and we're going to have a great evening as well now, nattering some more. But just before we get into it, as always, um, you can find us over on Facebook at Narrative Wargamer, or you can follow us on Twitter at Narrative40k and on Instagram at Narrative Wargamer. You can also contact us via email at narrativewargamer at gmail.com if you have any questions, or if, like Chris here, you would like to join us on a future episode. Finally, if you want to support the show and help us grow, you can do by joining our Patreon from only $2 a month. The support from our patrons helps towards the cost of producing the show and towards awesome new content for you guys in the future. Links are in the description below, so please check them out and get involved with the growing community. And someone who did exactly that is my guest tonight, Chris. Hello, mate. I have to say, I was really psyched when you sent me uh, an email the other week about wanting to come on the show and... You're telling me all about the uh, awesome stuff that you've been up to recently in the hobby. And now look at you. You are here. It's like a dream come true. No, I was <laughs> hyped to um, find out about the channel through Jakey you had on last time. And yes. to see what the uh, see what the happy hat was with the channel. So I've listened to a few episodes now. I've liked what I've heard. There's been a lot of stuff that I've taken away and thought, oh yeah, cool, I can really you know look at this and add it to my gaming. And maybe uh, stretch beyond the comfort zones of my 40k gaming, as it were. So I figured I think I should do a bit for the community and maybe add what I think might spice up other people's games and, you know, chatting about hobbies is always good. So why not do it on a public forum on the internet? Exactly. And I'm glad that you've enjoyed the previous episodes. Like the um, the last show with Jake's been doing really well. It's been really well received. So uh, I'm, I'm glad to know that people have been enjoying it and hopefully we've got a few more listeners from that, yeah, including yourself. I hope so too. Uh, if anyone else is interested, definitely check out the Cities of Death podcast that um, really kind of broadened my horizons for a rule set that I'd glanced over through Chapter Approved. But after listening to the episode and hearing all the awesome kind of excitement and the additional bits from it, I'm eager to uh, take it for a spin with some 40k games very soon. It's really good. Uh, I do think it's a really underrated game system. And in, to be honest, there's been whispers for a while now that elements of the Cities of Death rules might be incorporated into like future editions. Maybe if 8.5 or 9th edition rolls around, you know, people are anticipating there might be some of the soft or hardcover or partial or obscure target rules making their way into the core game. So that, that, that yeah. just shows like how well received they have been by people. Yeah, I'd be all over that. But yeah, they're great. And if you've not um, seen it either, I would check out some of the Stronghold Assault stuff as well. Um, I think that's in the 2017 chapter approved, I want to say. But I think uh, Stronghold Assault is another quite underrated format. And I'll, I want to do an episode on that in the future at some point. But that is not today's episode. Today, later on, we will be talking about... Um, actual narrative campaigns and all the various things you can do with those because that is another subject that I've been wanting to discuss for a while on the show because so far we've only really talked about standalone games and making those more interesting but um, you yourself Chris you've had some experience with campaign stuff so we're going to get into that later on which is going to be awesome. Yep can't wait. But in the meantime tell us 
your other big uh, exciting news that you've uh, recently been able to share with the world. So since Christmas last year, uh, I sadly fell on hard times at home. I needed to make a little bit of extra cash to uh, stay out the red and feed my dogs and make sure I was able to live a happy, healthy life. So I offered to paint some models for a few friends and this went well and they were really happy with it. So I put some adverts out there onto the internet for people to uh, send me their models to paint if they'd be happy for me to do so. And fast forward, what are we now? September. Yes, fast forward nearly 10 months later, I am able to go full-time commission painting with my service, The Unrelenting Brush, which is absolutely wicked. I feel very grateful and honoured and fortunate to be where I am. So yeah, I'm going to officially stay home and paint models. <laughs> Isn't that the dream? <laughs> It is if you're me. If you're oh, happiest excellent. with a brush in your hand and a brew on the arm of your chair. I mean, I've mentioned this in previous episodes, but I've been finding myself really enjoying painting more and more recently. But I have to say, like, a 10-month turnaround seems, like, really impressive to go from not being involved in commission painting at all to being able to do it full-time. Like, 10 months seems like a really excellent achievement. Yeah, it's been... Um... Unrelenting is the best way you can describe it. Ha ha ha. <laughs> so it stemmed from me obviously having to paint around my full-time job, finishing that, going home, painting models, getting up early, painting models, going to work, doing that on a vicious cycle, spending days off at home painting. But hard work is its own reward, I've always said. So thankfully this has resulted in me getting a load of jobs done. I think I just took my 80th request from people <laughs> wanting me to paint stuff for them. Uh, it might be a little bit more than that, but we'll say 80 because that's what I can prove. So yeah, it's been a it's been an amazing journey. It's not been easy. It's been obviously interesting, and I've tried my best not to get myself burnt out, which is yet to happen. But the fact <laughs> that I can paint people's models, put them on the internet, get lots of gratitude and thanks from them, and get paid for it, it's a uh, yeah. I'm a uh, very fortunate to be where I am. I mean, you've already posted one or two of the things that you've been working on for your own personal projects uh, over on our Facebook group, uh, and they look excellent. Like, Thank I you mean, kindly. The, the Doom Rider that you finished recently. Is that what it is? The new. Yeah, um, the, uh, the Admech Doom Rider for my yeah. uh, Cult Metallica. Yeah, that looks awesome. Because, like, the funny thing is, you posted a few, like, work in progress pics of it. And um, I. Each sort of stage with it, I thought you'd done the armor, if that made sense. Like, because it looked like it was already finished. And then every sort of following post i was like oh no it makes sense that you've you've now changed you've now added like this tonal effect to it or oh now you've weathered it now you've chipped it but <laughs> in such a way that it made it seem like the the previous step was obviously a work in progress step but every time i'd seen them previously i thought they were finished <laughs> that really pleases me because it's so often i upload a work in progress picture and then upload a finished picture and i'm like oh god oh god no what more could i have done to it <laughs> Thankfully, that only happens with my own hobby. Uh, I don't send other people's models out to them unless I'm 100% satisfied and unless they're 100% satisfied. But it's taught me a lot. I've learned more techniques. I've learned how to, you know, go beyond my boundaries and stretch myself beyond what I'd probably consider to be comfortable painting. But it's resulted in me getting all this knowledge and painting all these models and having a wicked time while I do it. Which is awesome. So um, where can people find you in particular if they actually would be interested in getting you to do some commission work for them? So I'm on Facebook at The Unrelenting Brush Commission Painter. 
I am on Instagram as the underscore unrelenting underscore brush. And then I also have a website on WordPress. So if you just Google the unrelenting brush WordPress, my website should be at the top. Uh, give us a follow on Facebook because it's also a hobby blog. I do a few tutorials and Q&As and like to keep people in the loop and want to engage with the community much like yourselves at a Narrative 40k. Yeah, um, you can find like me over on Instagram uh, over at Narrative Wargamer and say over on Twitter as well at Narrative 40k. But honestly, like by comparison, I feel very much like a, a casual hobbyist <laughs> when I post like, my work in progress stuff. But uh, so you can find some of your stuff over in the Facebook group as well. So, like, you're all over the place. But also, like, whenever I see anything that you've been producing, it just looks great. Thank you very so, much. Yeah. Um, yeah, you just reminded me, actually, I've got the second June crawler I need to upload tonight. Maybe tomorrow. That's a future Chris problem. We'll not worry about that now. <laughs> well, speaking of future Chris, tell us a little bit about past Chris. Like... How long have you actually been in the hobby and how did it all start for you? So it all started when I was but an 11-year-old boy. Uh, I'm an identical twin and my brother and I were walking down Sadlergate in Derby with our mother and we walked past a shop that had an enormous banner in the window that had this great big green armoured soldier on it and we were instantly like, what on earth? So in we go to this Now Games Workshop uh, and we're approached by two wicked dudes called Peachy and Duncan, who are now oh, presenters wow, on Warhammer really? TV. So the prestige from my local store is quite high. <laughs> yeah. I started with Tyranids. My first ever purchase was a blister pack of metal Tyranid gargoyles. I think they were H, and I think they cost me £4, maybe £6. Oh, I remember that. The letter cost uh, it's a system for the pricing yes which made it very <laughs> confusing so i got those i went back to my friend's house uh, who turned out they collected as well and i tried to glue them together foiled it massively i think i super glued them to his table <laughs> and i'd love to know where those gargoyles are now well maybe they're still decorating the corners of his table like true gargoyles i think i covered them with a newspaper or a farm foods price flyer or something like that and then i think i just went away <laughs> so I, I started with the Tyranids and then my brother started with Necrons and what once was some warriors and a couple of gargoyles grew to battle forces I remember getting a Carnifex for myself and he got a monolith and we never actually played the game uh, for whatever reason we just got all the models and painted them up and then so yeah it was about 11 or 12 and then from there, school got serious, uh, exams, girls, all those ridiculous things that get in the way of someone's true hobby passion. <laughs> and so we put those away. He went off to uni and I decided to work. And then I picked the hobby back up again when I was working at KFC when I was about 17. So then I did orcs. And I did, I think I had a war boss and 30 boys painted. And then I fell out of it again, for whatever reason. Again, probably uh, relationships were involved. And then, since then, I got back into the hobby for the third and definitely final time. When I was in my early 20s, about... How old am I? Oh, I'm 30 now. Not early 20s then, mid-20s. Uh, and I collected Space Wolves. And since then, I got a Tyranid army. And from then onwards... 
I have been collecting ever since and have an array of armies. It would be easier for me to tell you what I don't have as opposed to what I do have. <laughs> right, uh, one of those questions. So almost, um, almost sort of competing with Dave's extensive collection. Yeah, I mean, Dave, Dave from the previous episode's been in this game a lot longer than I have. I think he's been in it a lot longer than most of us. Yeah, I think he's been in it longer than I've been alive. But thankfully, <laughs> uh, I was able to be employed uh, by Games Workshop to work in one of their stores, uh, which helped me with a few things. It helped me grow my passion for the hobby and develop new skills and become what I want to be in a hobbyist who generates community. But it also helped me accrue a lot of models. Yeah, it will do that. Like, An ungodly I, 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 amount of models. I've had friends that have been staff members in the past, and just by being friends with them, it kind of uh, accelerates your collections, for sure. Yeah, it's all very much fun in games. The best example I had was when uh, Titanicus first came out, and I remember looking at it and thinking, oh yeah, that's cool. And then it came up for pre-order, and I bought just about one of everything. And then I've got two manipuls now with all the gubbins, all the extra bits and bobs. And it just goes to show how, not reckless we'll say, but how inspirational it can be working within the company and then being able to uh, supply your hobby in that way. Yeah, I can imagine. I mean, like one of the things that I've been finding just over the last sort of two years, really, I've as some of our listeners already know, you know, I've been involved with the Chronicles from the Underhive podcast for about 18 months now, um, yep. which is an awesome Necromunda podcast. You should go check them out as well. If you get I will definitely check that out. I do like Necromunda. <laughs> yeah, it's funny that, that uh, still to this day, there's very few just online content creators covering Necromunda really at all. And I'm pretty sure The Chronicles is one of the few, if not only, podcasts that exclusively talks about Necromunda. But it's awesome. Go check it out. Um, but I found that being engaged with that community, being part of that podcast, and just really keeping in touch with the Necromunda hobby has just really kept me engaged with it. Like, you know, I've a bit like, say, Blood Bowl or something similar, it's easy to get hyped when releases come around get a few things but then if you're not actively playing in a campaign kind of lose interest or get disconnected from it well we're all um we're all victims to our own hype trains uh my, me and my friends have done necromunda campaigns we've done blood bowl leagues we tried to do a titanicus campaign but sadly that never bore fruit and it's just <laughs> there are select members in the in in my hobby circle, I go, oh, guys, this is amazing. We should do this. And everyone's like, yeah, that's a great idea. And then fast forward three weeks, and the next thing comes out, oh, guys, we should do this. Oh, yeah, it's a great idea. But the um, the big pro about being involved with community like the Chronicles community is that even though I might not have been, like, I've certainly not been involved in Necromunda campaigns constantly for the past 18 months, but I yeah. felt like I've been very much involved in the Necromunda hobby. And yeah, and that, that involvement and that exposure and being an aspect of that community and seeing it develop and grow, that's one of the things I love about aspects of the hobby, especially within circles of people who maybe wouldn't be as keen as they were if it wasn't around. Yeah, and I think that's one of the things that I'm trying to sort of emulate with this podcast and you know with the Narrative Wargamer sort of channel as a whole is that I'm really trying to strive for maintaining interest and excitement and involvement 
with narrative play 40k because there's a lot of stuff that would keep people involved in say like the competitive scene because like the motion of the changing meta the new releases the annual events and tournaments they attend all that helps keep them involved with that aspect of the hobby even if they don't get a huge amount of time to do the hobby yeah whereas the narrative stuff i think can sometimes feel a bit more like flash in the pan for a lot of people um like yeah sure vigilus had so much hype when it came out but it's kind of died down um and realistically vigilus only gets mentioned now mostly in the context of special detachments for competitive lists um, yeah definitely but i know that i for one i'm still so hyped about the vigilus stuff not so much because of new releases as such but because there's still a wealth of gaming resources in there that i've not even touched yet like, yeah the books chance... the books are amazing they're so so good i got both of them pre-ordered uh, and as soon as I read through the background, I was looking through all the narrative play missions and the Crucibles of War, the Echoes of War. Uh, and if only we had more times to play games. Yeah, and yet the funny thing is, a lot of people, maybe a year out from now, could easily be saying to themselves, I'm a little bit bored of playing Milstrom over and over. It's like, well, you've had that Vigilus book sat on your shelf for the past year. And yeah. now you're wondering what you can do to make your games more interesting. Pick up your Vigilus book, play some Crucible of War missions, play some Echoes of War. Use some battle zones, run a, like a local or even just in your circle of friends, run a, a nihilist um, campaign, you know, uh, using stuff in there because that's something we'll touch on later tonight. But there's yeah. all sorts of brilliant little things in there. And being, hopefully being involved with like this podcast, with the channel and all the stuff that we're hoping to get out in the future, as I say, I'm hoping one day we'll get around to actually being able to produce some video battle reports and that will be all sort of exclusively narrative battles and that will keep people engaged in all this almost like kind of under the radar kind of stuff yes like it, it's yeah, it's yeah, there yeah. but it's there but people don't look for it so they don't know about it yeah or people forget about it and keeping it in people's forefront of people's minds i think um is going to be yeah. whereabouts in the world are you by the way uh <laughs> Believe it or not, I'm only up in West Yorkshire. I'm actually just oh, in okay. Leeds. Not a million miles away from Derby, then? No, not at all. Uh, I've been on many a day trip down to Wabba World, so, you know, Derby is... Good also, to know. Yeah, no, in, by no means out of reach. No, it's... I'm, another thing I'm grateful for is to have Warhammer World 20 minutes away from home, but that's resulted in a lot of trips to Forge World. <laughs> yeah, well, there was a time when um, I was actually a, a student in Nottingham, uh, in my uni years, so yeah. for about two years, Warhammer World was my local store. Yes, and your student <laughs> loan kept disappearing through means unbeknownst to anyone. Hmm, it, it managed to miraculously get stolen by a lot of rat men. We was robbed. <laughs> we was robbed indeed. Um, but yeah, so, you know, it, it. I'm really sort of hoping to create that kind of constant engagement and really create a platform for driving and championing your know, narrative play and uh one aspect of that as i say is going to be campaign stuff which i think we'll be getting on to a little bit later but i i think that's a pretty fair introduction for yourself gone over a few things about you know where you came up with the hobby what you're doing now which is excellent and um 
it's certainly great to hear your enthusiasm for the kind of content and focus that I'm trying to foster in the community here. So, yeah, man, uh, it's a, a valued treasure. I hope more people get to appreciate. I hope so too. You know, like everything I'm doing is because I want people to discover new ways to play. Yeah. Like, I think that's, I've been looking for a tagline to sort of use throughout the, all my like, media platforms. And I think discovering new ways to play is going to quickly become it. I quite like it. I think it sums up a lot of what I'm trying to do. Yeah. So, yeah, excellent. Uh, so speaking of what we do in our community, I think we'll move on to the paint station garrison and we'll discuss what it is that we have been painting. Winner. As you can probably guess, moving into this section, Chris is going to have been painting probably a lot more than me. A model but, or two uh, here and there. Yeah. Hopefully I won't be put to shame by his very impressive painting output. So. Oh, you stop it. We'll be back in a second, guys. And we're back, guys. So, having introduced Chris... Um, I think it's time that he tells us what is on his paint station garrison. Okay, uh, so for my paint station garrison, uh, I've divided it into two lists because I've got things that I've completed for commissions and myself, and then work in progresses again for commissions and myself. So for completed, uh, this week, over the past week and a bit actually, not going to tell lies, I've done 11 Skatari Rangers for Stygies 8 and then 1 in Mars for a client. Two Doom Crawlers, which I finished today. Uh, the Doom Rider was for me. And then I've also been work in progressing for commissions. Two Iron Strider Dragoons. They're exceptionally fun to build if you've never built one. Uh, take it for a spin. Then that's the end of that Admet commission done. And after that, I'm going to un going on to a Horus Heresy Death Guard army, which is very exciting because... That's for a customer going to the same event as I at the end of September up in Durham for the Edge of Empire Company of Legends. Oh, what's that? I've, I've, I've not heard of that one. Uh, it's a 30k narrative event where you play a series of games. It's kind of like a mini campaign. They tell a story and set it on the planet and games affect the outcome. I went last year and it was a cracking time. And I, I lost... Four out of five games, but the one game I did win was against Custodies, so I'm taking that as a flawless victory. <laughs> uh, but yes, it's good fun. If you're a Heresy player, I thoroughly recommend you check it out. Awesome. We might have to uh, have you back on in the future to discuss your experience. Yes, happily do so. I'd, I'd so the Horus Heresy Death Guard yeah. Army. Uh, in the Death Guard Army, it is six Rapier Batteries, three Plasma Predators, three Laser Destroyer Vindicators... Five Death Shroud, a 10-man special weapon squad with chem flamers, and some other bits the client sent me on today. There's a, a lot, basically, but it's fine. I'm not sweating. I've got three weeks to do it. Be re I'm going to say, like, three, three weeks to me to turn that sort of stuff around is ridiculous. I don't know how you do it. I, I know one of the um, one sort of like the taglines for your production is... Um, what is it again? It's something along the lines of like fast but not compromising on quality. Uh, so the unrelenting brush is all about speed, quality and efficiency. So I've got an exceptionally quick turnaround to get you your models back to you in double time while never compromising on the quality or the finish of the model. If I'm not happy with it, it doesn't get sent back until I am. 
which is say honestly I mean all the sort of stuff that you you're working through but yeah three weeks to turn around an entire Death Guard heresy I mean, yeah. I've been working on these three mega knobs now for almost three weeks <laughs> but you've been but you I say this to the guys who I help paint you've been working on them and that's the trick the hardest bit about painting is picking up the brush oh yeah like nine the, times uh, out of ten once you've done that you're away the biggest boon that I've had to my painting in to be honest years is the fact that I'm in a position now where I can paint to my lunch breaks at work <laughs> so getting in a solid hour every day is just brilliant and does wonders yeah, it really does. Um, and part, as I've mentioned before, the whole point of this segment being called the Paint Station Garrison is because it will help highlight to ourselves the things that have been on our Paint Station for too long. Absolutely. So we will know what needs getting done and what is getting done at a good pace. But... Yeah, and again, if people want to join the uh, Narrative Wargamer community page that you've got with the group, go in there if you want painting advice. I'm more than happy to have a chat with people. If you want any guidance or hints and tips or even just a motivational uh, kick up the jacksy, Drop a comment and a picture in there and let's, you know, spur each other on to greater feats of painted models. Exactly. Um, so is there much else from you or is that everything that you've got work in progress? Uh, so I've, al- I've also got 45 Katachan to do for Jake. Oh, of course you do, yes. They will be my, they'll be my evening project uh, once the Death God army are underway. Severina Rain and a Wyvern for an Ashmolaterum army as well. I didn't realise those Katachans were actually for Jake. Like, I know obviously you must do a commission one, but I did not realise they were far kid in shock. Yes, yeah, he's a bit of a lad, and uh, he lets me paint stuff for him out of the kindness of his wonderful heart. Awesome. But then, uh, that's commissions. Uh, for me, not as much these days, funnily enough. I've got a few <laughs> bits to finish for my Armies on Parade board. The board's done, the terrain's done, the models are done. I just want to get some little banners and stencils on there to make it look really jazzy. What's the, uh, what's the theme? Oh, do I tell? Can I divulge? Uh, it's for my main Warhammer 40,000 army, which is Gene Steeler Cult. Uh, okay. It's yeah. literally covered in models. Uh, if I can get a picture where there's not a load of stuff around it, I will have to send you one. Awesome. I'd look forward to seeing that. And then on top of that, for this event at the end of September for the Death Guard, I've got my World Eaters that need three Rhinos, a Xiphon, and a Falchion Super Heavy Tank Destroyer. Those I am a bit worried about, but if I get them done, amazing. If not, I'll just amend my list. As long as my uh, my clientele get their stuff done first, that's the priority. Yeah. But I've got loads got of it. time. Sleeps for the week. <laughs> and like you say, you, you've only really just started doing the commission stuff full time. So I imagine at this point, it probably does feel like you've got way more time than you've previously had to do commission work. Exactly, but I can't fall into that trap because that's where it'll all start going Pete Tong. Yeah. No, but that's why it, early starts, late finishes, everything will come together. Oh yeah. Like you said, just just keep painting and it's surprising how quickly you'll get through it all. Uh, what about you, pal? What have you been uh, slaving away over? Well, um, I am pleased to say that I completed, since the last show, um, the the large like Death World Forest piece that I've been working on for a little while. Um, I'm slowly working on getting terrain to, uh, together and done for my own uh, gaming board at home 
and in no small part because I actually want to have a collection of painted terrain so that I can get around to doing some video battle reports on them. And that sounds amazing. I, I the one thing want... about the the one thing about terrain, uh, which I sadly suffer from full time, is where the hell do you put it all? Oh yeah, I'll be getting some like open front cabinets and stuff, shelves that are dedicated just to terrain because I want to have sounds a good, good selection, but. Like one of the things that I'm aiming for is to not just have the samey looking tables that a lot of the video battle report guys have out on YouTube and such. Um, like some of the you see a lot of stuff repeated, and I'd love to have some very sort of unique stuff. And I think having a a really really detailed like Death World board, um, some really nice area terrain would look great. So I've been loving working on that recently. Um, there's some shots of it up on my Instagram, um, and it's been a really like positive response to it, so it's really encouraging. I think a lot of people are just uh, quite happy to see some greenery again on a 4K table, <laughs> not just be completely burnt out buildings everywhere. Yeah, they look mega when they're done, and again, more variety is always a good thing. Um, I've got like four or five mats, and I've got various buildings and sector mechanicum bits and ruins and broken up bits of stuff. Uh, diversity always helps, but then, like I say, you've just got to have somewhere to put it. Yeah, <laughs> I'll soon have because I do also have a, a sort of space set aside to be a, a gaming studio. So once that's all set up as well, that'll be awesome. Um, but yeah, so I finished um, Death World Forest number. Free, and as for work in progress, I've been working on piece number four, but that one is almost done already. I've turned that around in like less than a week. Um, I'm already mounting the artificial plants on it now, and I'm just waiting for those to be all set so that I can just then touch up the basing around there, and they'll be done. Absolute um, lad, do you use um MDF for the bases? <laughs> no, uh, believe it or not, I actually use um the old. I use backing boards from old like wardrobes or sets of drawers and stuff. Oh, that's a stupidly good idea. <laughs> you <laughs> can't keep little tidbits like that to yourself. Um, well, the funny thing is, uh, I know this because I've done it for a couple of years now, because years ago I used to actually work for IKEA. <laughs> um, Another truly great place to work for, for when you need to get a lot of really useful bits. Yes. And one of the things that they always have at the end of the stores is like the clearance department. Um, yep. And they've got like a load of X display pieces and stuff, but they always have like um, a big section that's like single panels from like, you know, wardrobes, drawers, stuff like that. And like an just, odds and sods kind of thing. Yeah, odds and sods. And they're just like pennies to get. So like I, you can buy like whole backboards from like wardrobes for like 50p. because Lord have mercy. <laughs> so I've got... Yeah, I've got a load upstairs that's all like cut up into just, you know, rough sort of like foot by foot squares or whatever, because I'm never really going to need anything bigger than that. And yeah. um, I just mark out whatever it is I want to uh, size base I want for area terrain. And you can literally cut it out with scissors because it's soft <laughs> enough that you can do that. And then that's I just amazing. get like um, sanding tools, um, like just handheld ones, and I just like, you know, sand down the edges so that it's smooth. Yeah smooth them down and bevel them that's the other thing about this hobby it's amazing how like insanely resourceful you'll get you'll get yeah. a i got myself a new tv the other day and got the got it out with the um 
get oh, out the immediately styro- look at the polystyrene. The, yeah, the polystyrene stuff. And I was there like, oh, oh, oh. No, no, it's rubbish. Put it in the bin. Yeah. I've got a cupboard full of polystyrene that's not been touched for like a year and a half. But yeah, that's, that's what I use for the area. Uh, it's good. It's smart. It's Yeah, that's that's amazing. I'll, I'll steal that from you. <laughs> it's perfectly solid enough that it works for what we need it for, for like wargaming stuff on the tabletop. But it's also like soft enough that you don't need power tools to cut it. Yeah, perfect. Um, so you can just do it like a hobby knife or a pair of scissors or whatever. Yeah, it's perfect. Um, and then the actual like artificial plants I put on it after I've painted the rest of the base and the model and the miniature is just stuff taken from like pet shops. Just things yeah. you get for like a, not necessarily aquariums because I find they look a bit too wispy because obviously they're intended to be in water. Yeah. But if you get stuff for like um, reptile tanks, then yeah, that sounds good. That's perfect. You can you can, a couple of quid. You can get like a big string of these artificial plants or whatever. And uh, I've also used some of the um, again back to my IKEA resources. But uh, if you've seen any of my pictures on Instagram at all, you'll notice that most of the uh, forest pieces have at least one or two of the large. It's not quite um, a flower head, but it's more like a a bush piece. But yeah. um, this piece of like fake shrubbery, that's actually again, it's a fake potted plant that you can buy from IKEA for like sixty p. Yeah, and I've literally just depotted it and then stick it to the base. Amazing. Uh, and it's the perfect sort of size and scale and everything. And then I use um, like polyfiller to. Um, sculpt around it once I've super glued it to the base so that the polyfiller then sets and creates like um, one an extra hold and gives two, it a better bond like, and it um, also makes it look a little bit more natural and that, yeah like a mound of earth yeah and then just PVA glue and you know it's, you know, modeling sand and it's brilliant but the um, the thing I would have to say if you're going to use artificial plants at all for that sort of thing yeah. make sure you've painted absolutely everything else on that terrain piece first and the yeah. last thing you do is attach the artificial plants because you don't want to get any paint on them or anything because it's it'll be nearly impossible to try and match whatever the tone of the plastic was originally. Yeah. So that's the thing I'd do with them. Yeah, I've still got some of the... Do you remember they used to do donkeys ago? Uh, the plastic plants from Games Workshop for terrain. Yeah, I occasionally see them on eBay and I'm really tempted to pick them up. And the funny thing is, I swear that one of the ones in there is identical to one of the ones that I've got from these reptile tanks. Interesting. So it must have originally been like commissioned by some, you know, plastic form company. They'd obviously done various things over the years and they probably repurposed yeah. molds, but I swear it's identical, just slightly different. They always version. come back. They always come back yeah. to the tables. Hmm. So yeah, um, so I'm really pleased that that's nearly done. It'll probably be done in a day or two. If it wasn't the fact that putting the um, the polyfiller down is quite scratchy and noisy over the microphone, I'd be doing it right now. Yeah. Um, so that'll probably be done tomorrow or maybe the day after. Um, but that's just terrain. In fact, actually, that isn't even all the terrain. I forget. I've also been working on um, the... It's a set of Games Workshop craters, but it were released yonks ago with the original release of Planet Strike. Were well, so they like the not... old Moonscape ones, the old really thin kind of plasticky ones? So yes, it's that kind of um, like vacuum form plastic uh, craters, 
but it's they not were good. The... I don't I don't know why they get rid of really good bits like that. I mean, I know why they get rid of it, but I wish they didn't. Yeah, same. They are really good, and I want to get some of those actual Moonscape ones one day when I see them on eBay or wherever. Yep. But no, these ones, these are the ones that are actually from the Planet Strike release, which means that they're kind of a bit more... They tell a little bit of a story. Do you remember the laser burn crater? Yes. Do you ever remember seeing that one? I've got one of those because it's from that set. Nice. Um, and then there's like a pair of crashed satellites that are like in these craters. Um, and then there's some like asteroids that have fallen in a row as well. And um, it, the idea is it's meant to be all the sort of stuff that um, was originally used in some of like the early versions of stratagems in Planet Strike. Like the laser burn was meant to actually represent like a stratagem where you drew two points on the table and you drew a line across it because it was a, a like an orbital strike like an ion beam lasering stuff to death yeah um, so the good. asteroids were actually like an asteroid strike because it'd be like the attackers have been throwing down asteroids from orbit onto the planet and stuff like that but Amazing. they just look brilliant now and um they're uh, they're perfect sort of like area terrain without having too much height but they also yeah. you can quite often use these without having to use them as area terrain you can just yeah. have them on the board they look nice but you can just count them as open ground yeah you it's know, the it's the third thing. army on the table the terrain oh yeah it is I, like i've i've always liked that uh saying when i hear it and it's true and it's one of the reasons why i actually really enjoy working on my terrain more than anything because i can tell you now that those planet strike critters are probably going to see more use on the table like game per game than say yep. my gorgonaut will yeah yeah. yeah, it really is amazing. And as much as I love, uh, I go to a gaming club in Derby called Balls and Swords Hobbies. Uh, it's amazing, love them. Uh, if you're local to the Midlands, check them out. Uh, they've got some really nice mats and some really beautiful terrain. But on a few tables, there's the green felt. Yes. And I'm always when I get there, and there's these beautifully painted bits of terrain on and big green felt underneath. I'm like, oh, my version. Mm. <laughs> yeah, I've got um, a a battle mat that I use that. I picked up from um, Deep Cut Studios because it's one of the few ones I felt that did a nice like jungle base mat. Yeah. Because I don't think you actually see many of them, but it goes nicely with the aesthetic I'm trying to create with this Death World board. Perfect. Um, but yeah, and then and one of the other things I have to say about these Planet Strike craters is it's it's weird and it's obviously a process of the vacuum form that they did years and years ago when they sculpted them, but they come and they're sculpted, but they're sculpted up from a very sort of like flat 2d footprint that kind of outlines the whole thing yeah and like I know you said, it, yeah it kind of spoils that immersion a little bit because it makes them look like they are a piece of plastic that you've put down on the table rather than being nice enough to merge with your table and look like terrain yeah so as an added sort of extra to try and alleviate that what i did with them was i went back to my good old friend polyfiller and yes. i sculpted up and over all those flat edges to meet up with the actual edge of the sculpted crate uh, crater yeah um and then went back and pva glued it and put uh, sand on it so now it actually the whole thing from the very inner edge of the crater to the very outer edge of the terrain piece has sculpted sand on it yeah on the sculpted surface and it's just a small touch but it makes them look so much better yeah, absolutely. So, uh, they're very much like a work in progress, but um, I'm hoping over the next couple of weeks and next couple of shows, 
I'll be getting them knocked out when I get a chance because the main issue is I don't get opportunity to work on them very often. Yeah. Because large terrain piece, I need to be able to sort of sit down and dedicate some time to working on them. I can't just sneak them in my bag and get them to work and work on them on a lunch break. Um, much like the Gorgonaut, who I'm also looking at right now because he's still sat in the garrison and I think he's the first sort of real culprit who's been here a while. Yes. But it's worth saying that I did know he was going to be here for a while as well. He's kind of like the, um, he's like my palate cleanser model at the moment. If I yes. just want a bit of a change and a little bit of a break from whatever it is that I'm working on production line method, I'll just be like, right, I'm going to put down this squad of boys. I'm going to put down these mega knobs and I'm going to just work a little bit on this thing on the gawk knot. That yeah. Or just just wash a few rivets, you know, add a bit of battle damage, do some yeah. red belcher here and there. And so the, the weird upshot of that is that he's, he's getting there. There's a lot of work that's been done in him and there's, you know, bit more to do yet but i also don't feel like i've really dedicated any time to him he's just kind of happening to get painted (laughs) by himself almost that's cool though because there'll be that one day where it's like oh i'll pick him up and get him done oh he's 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 done yeah (laughs) and i think that'll be probably sometime in the near future not quite sure if it will be next episode but hopefully by the episode after that if not that i reckon he'll be he'll be blocked out by the end of the month that's it Um, challenge set pretty much Whereas the unit that I've been sort of dedicating time to at work this month has been the uh, the first of the Death Wreckers, which is my unit, Meganobs. Yes. So anyone that's been following the Facebook group or following me on Instagram will have seen a couple of the different stages of work in progress on them. Um, and they're almost there now. I'm at the stage of just finishing up the armor plates, so which is always the last stage of my orcs, because everything yeah. else gets done... Uh, before that, all the wires, the cables, the leather, the skin, the teeth, the everything else. And then the last thing is I touch up the blue armor plates and then I do my two stages of weathering to make it look yep. really orky. So yeah, the they're moment, looking wicked. Yeah. Uh, at the moment, t- earlier today, I finished the last of the armor plates tidy up on all three of them. And right now I'm just applying the first um, wash to the first one. So Amazing. hopefully... Give it end of the week, and I'll probably have the first stage of weathering done on all of them, and then maybe early next week I'll actually have them all finished. Because what has been nice is I've actually got them all based already. Yes. Um. So that's already done, and the only thing that's left to do on the base is just to pin on the rim, which is always kind of like the nice finishing touch, especially since using paint handles and things. I don't feel like I can ever paint them and then put them in the a paint handle grip because I feel like the grip then tends yeah, to lose mark the paint. the paint and they'll lose some of the edging. Yeah, so even though I could paint the rim on now and the base will be done, I'd rather wait until it's the absolute last thing on the model and then it doesn't have to go back in the paint grip. Yeah, for sure. I don't know about you, but with me, when I paint Orcs for 40k or for Sigmar, probably one of the, the most satisfying things to paint in this hobby ever is the teeth on an Orc. <laughs> <laughs> they're just they're so beautifully sculpted and got such lovely gaps and kind of protrusion where you can really go from like a dark brown to a caramel brown to a white oh just thinking about it weirdly the thing that i actually think i enjoy painting the most on the orc boys in particular is the steel toe cap on the boots brilliant it's just a nice little touch on the model and it, when you've primarily been working on a leather stage 
prior to that. It's nice just to go, and here's a nice solid area of metal that I can just put this layer on and move on. I didn't have yep. to spend ages on it. It was a nice little break of pace. But I d the one thing I have to say is to anyone who has never painted an orc boy, you do not realise how much detail there actually is on an orc boy until you paint it. Yeah, it's, it's incredible how much there is on there. Considering the age of the sculpt and the fact that they're a baseline troop and you don't run them in squads of five or ten. Yeah, like people talk about, oh, just dry brush them and get them done really quickly because you need hundreds of them. But you can't dry brush so many different colours. Yeah. Like you've got green flesh, uh, you've got your brown leather, and that's assuming you do all the leather one colour. And to be honest, the actual leather has about three, four, five potential different even tones and areas because you've got... Yeah. Shirt, pants, boots, straps, and Belt. um, belts, and like um, uh, just rope that they've got like tied around wrists and stuff. Yeah, straps around the guns and bits like that. Yeah, um, headpiece straps like on the helmet straps and stuff. Oh, yeah, and they've got like sometimes they've got fur helmets and stuff like that. Yeah, so then there's fur as well. Then there's oh, the metallics. I want to paint but... some orcs now. I really, really <laughs> want to paint some orcs. And Orcs, I think, don't look right if you just use one metallic tone as well. Like a space ring, yeah. all the metal on him is going to be, you know, lead belcher or equivalent. It's all going to be that, like, silvery metal. But an orc, yeah. if you can do him properly, he's going to need rusted metal, bronzed metal, steely metal, because it needs to look yeah. like it's all come from different sources. Yes, but, yeah. it and then, does. And then the face, which you don't have to paint on the space ring the majority of the time, because it's just part of the armour. You Like yeah. you say, you've got skin teeth, eyes, the amount of jewellery they've got. Like, they have a metal loop in their ear, then they'll have a, a metal loop on their lip, and then they might have one yep. in their nose. They might scars have as fetish. well, scars down the faces, scars down their arms. Yeah. Nails. Oh my god, I want to paint smoke so bad. Uh, th then you can do war paint. Like, because yep. <laughs> again, not often that a space marine is actually wearing war paint on his skin, but it's quite common for an orc. Then there'll be bionics thrown in there. So you need to do some lenses, even though he's not helmeted. Or he might have a lens, but then also fur on his helmet. Yep. And then, <laughs> the best part is, once you've done that one, you look at the grey tide next to you. Yeah. Honestly, if you never painted an orc, be, be glad. If, it, if it's not your bag, you have to be a dedicated... I would always tell someone it. to give it a go, because honestly, I, I don't know satisfaction like painting an orc. <laughs> That is true. Like, uh, for me, I have enjoyed every minute of painting my death skulls, and I am really looking forward to seeing this uh, like mob of three megadobs finish. I say, realistically, it's a mob of six. Uh, I've, I couldn't bring myself to do production line on six Gazgul Frackers. So yes, I figured I'd absolutely. break it down into two batches of three. <laughs> yeah, I will do that Green Tide Goth army one day. Yeah, it'll look cool. I, I do think a large Goth army always looks impressive. Yes. Uh, they've typically up until you're picking them up occasion. by the handful off the table yeah <laughs> yeah that's always the greatest shame isn't it with orcs it's like I spent all this time putting all these models and I spent put them back in the case taking them off the table yeah but hey ho to each their own so yeah, that's why I have a lot of mechanised orcs as opposed to just a constant green tide but sensible um, orcs that's what you have sensible orcs sensible I have lucky orcs that's what I have Yes. I got into a fun little um, commenting um, thread of someone on Instagram talking about my uh, truck being painted blue. He's like, but it won't go fast. Ah, but it'll be lucky. But it won't yes. be fast. But then it wouldn't be lucky. 
Oh, the decisions faced by Orc players. Anyway, I think that is just about everything from the Pensation Garrison. Like I say, plenty on the way, plenty more on its way out. Soon I'll have a painted board of Death World stuff, even though it seems like it's never ending. Soon I will have some finished Mega Knobs, and they will be gracing the Facebook group. And see if you want to see them finished or see some more um, work in progress pics, or even if you would like to show us like, your own stuff, because I do love to see what other people are working on then uh, definitely go check out the Facebook group and uh, look forward to seeing other people's PlayStation garrisons over on there. So I think we will move on to Games Played next. Winner. So we'll be back in a minute. Are you enjoying the Narrative Wargamer podcast? If you are, why not check out our community Facebook group at Narrative Wargamer on Facebook. We share our latest hobby projects and narrative battles and aim to grow a community for casual and narrative 40k players. We're always excited to see the awesome things our listeners are working on and it is a great place to hang out with other like-minded hobbyists. You can also find us on Instagram at Narrative Wargamer and over on Twitter at Narrative40k for regular hobby updates on our 40k projects. Right, and we're back. Uh, now we're going to be moving on for uh, on for no on to games played. So uh, since we just heard a bit from me in the Pinstation Garrison, I think it's only fair that it's Chris's turn to talk about some of the games he's played. And to some of you, it may sound familiar about this game played, but uh, I'll let Chris elaborate. Uh, so apparently, last uh, last show. My mate Jake at Canadian Shock was telling everyone how he beat me. Uh, lies and propaganda. Uh, it's all lies. I <laughs> never saw a rattling on the table. It's all uh, it's all uh, nonsense by him. No, it was a completely wicked game. Uh, again, it was one of those, what kind of game show we play? Uh, I think it was Jake who recommended we play a Vigilist mission. And I said, yep, cool, let's do that. I'm always down for any kind of out-there game as opposed to, you know, your Eternal Warrior Maelstroms. Uh, won't so, cover yeah, everything so they... in detail because you, you and him did a great job last week of exactly how the game went but I could certainly give you my perspective yeah I think that would be uh, really insightful because as it part of the reason why I had Jake on on the last episode was because this game against your Admech playing the um, the Doomsday Advice mission from Vigilus Ablaze was because it was one of his first experiences with like true narrative play and getting his insights on that and seeing what he felt was good about it and what he enjoyed about it was excellent. And I think I didn't realize at first when you first emailed me about coming on the show that actually you were the admin player that Jake played in that game. And I thought, oh, this is brilliant because we can, <laughs> we can now actually hear your perspective on that game and your experiences as we're playing that same narrative game. Because uh, if you remember when we were talking to Jake, we were saying that we thought it'd be interesting that on paper he was playing with a huge tank army versus a castellan in a game where he wouldn't be bothering to target the castellan so surely it would have just been a very one-sided duck shoot but actually when you played the game that wasn't the case at all and it played out really well and was really interesting and i think it'd be great to hear it from your point of view as well no it was a really really amazing game jake's always a wicked dude to play against um it's nice to see his uh, his army grow and his paintings come on leaps and bounds since i first played a game with him about four years ago 
so that's that's a bit of the the interaction with Jake that I love. But the game itself, yeah, it was it was wicked. It was nice to again play something neither of us may have would have immediately have jumped to, out of comfort or oh we know Eternal War or oh we know Maelstrom. Let's see what happens there. So we rolled randomly for the book because I brought a Blaze and he brought Defiant and we got a Blaze and then we rolled for the mission and it was Doomsday Device. So when I play a game, I always try and think of the story being told, uh, what's going to look cool, and then I think what's going to get me the victory that my army would want. Not the victory I want, the victory my army would want. So I think very much from the perspective of why are the Admech there, why have they teamed up with the Knights, why do the... Uh, Cadians want this Doomsday device to be destroyed so badly. Uh, yeah. Because of that, sometimes I do silly things, like charging a Castellan into Creed, a Psyker, and ten Guardsmen. And somehow Creed walking away from it. Bloody Creed. Stood there with his cigar pointing up at this night going, Oi, less of that. <laughs> it was the Castellan's first game, and as most people will be aware, first game jitters can affect a model. The first turn he did nothing. I think he took a couple of wounds off a couple of Russes. And I was instantly like, stupid knight, why did I even bring it? Stupid thing. What's the point? What's it even do? It doesn't even look that good. Yeah, but like you say, that's new model syndrome. Go let him get yes. over that hump of the first game before. Yeah, we all really we all get him. you know pre-game jitters. You know, it's his it's his first time. We'll we'll ease him into it. But then from then onwards, the knight pretty much took out a Lehman Russ or two Lehman Russ a turn. Uh, the Dune Crawlers did quite nicely in popping tanks because obviously it was a seven Lehman Russ list, uh, which was very sweaty on top of the seventeen Rattlings and on top of the Basilisk that somehow was able to target the Doomsday device with ease each turn and consistently do damage. Well, so how did you find playing with that like objective in mind? You know, like how the aim was to protect this you know, essentially terrain piece, you know, this objective yeah. marker. Well again, I bring objective markers to every game and I don't mean, you know, tokens or dice. I've got the um what they call the sector imperialist objectives from forty K. So yeah. thankfully, I I actually had my Doomsday device with me. Yeah, it's funny that there is one. That in to that me is game. a big deal. So I stuck the knight in front of the Doomsday device, and he was tasked with the being the Praetorian protector of the Doomsday device. The Tet priest Dominus, who was my warlord, stood by it as well to repair it and support the knight in doing what it needed to do. And I did my best to try and eradicate the threats to the Doomsday device. So the high damage Lehman Russers, the ones with the silly amount of D3 shots like the Plasma one and the uh, the City Lehman Russi had with the three flat damage on it. Oh uh, yeah, the Hammer of Sundance. That's the one. Uh, yeah, and it, it played a great game and it told a great story. Um, and I hate it when people say this, but if it didn't get the extra turn victory would have been mine. But yeah. it's the fate of the dice. He fought a really, really good game uh, and thankfully he was able to get that last wound off the Doomsday device shortly followed by my knight, uh, my Castellan exploding because it was going to be charged by something, so I overcharged it and it took its own last wound off itself because I'm spiteful. <laughs> I attempt to go supernova. Yeah. But it didn't explode, explode, which is, you know, that double six to do 2d6 worth of dam uh, of mortal wounds or whatever it is would have been very spicy right in his deployment zone. Uh, how did you find playing... Like that sort of crucible war mission, compared to playing like you know Eternal War or Milsham, you know having that essentially singular objective to the game as opposed to cumulative or 
uh, varying every turn. Yeah, it was nice because it was it was very much from turn one to turn six or seven or whatever the game go to. You know what your objective is, and you know what the conditions are clearly, uh, and it's very single-minded in how it's going to be achieved. Uh, the stratagems are really good to help you give it an involved save or to repair extra amounts. Um, and again, like you mentioned, if it was any other kind of Eternal War game or Maelstrom game, uh, it would have been just slogging back and forth across the board with shots and shells. And I don't think it would have been as not as, as exciting in that way, because, you know, I love playing against Jake, he's a good guy, but I think the story of the mission really added to the game. Yeah. Because I, I have to say, I, I've been finding I quite enjoy these missions where you know what it is you're setting out to achieve from the start of the battle and what it is you're going to achieve by the end of the battle. I, I feel like that's how a lot of, you know, real war is fought. Like, you know, each side knows what it's trying to do in the conflict. And I sometimes it takes me out of it a little bit and makes me aware I'm playing like a board game or, or an equivalent when suddenly... Yeah. Each turn, my I have a couple of units that just decide to run backwards and forwards because they're trying to chase this imaginary dice roll that keeps telling them which objective is important each turn. Yeah, because you know, what what sounds what sounds better? You've got to hold this doomsday device and stop it being destroyed, or the planet basically dies, or capture objective six. Yeah, and then capture objective two. Yeah, and then, and then you don't want that four. one anymore. You want to go get that one over there, but that's yeah. all the way over there. I was just at that objective. Yeah. <laughs> There was nothing there now. What's that? Oh. <laughs> it sometimes it takes me out of it a little bit. Uh, so I do quite. I think I've been discovering that I quite enjoy these singular end game objectives where you know what it is you're trying to do from at the start and how you spend the whole sort of game fighting to do that thing. So yeah, I think it's good. Yeah. Um, so overall, it was a wicked game. Um, I'm definitely going to catch up with Jake and play him once I've finished his Catachan. I think that's probably a condition for when I play him next. Uh, and I'm sure we'll look at doing another mission from Vigilus because I would love to. Oh, there's tons of good ones in there. There's loads of good ones. I, I really like one of the. Um, there's one that's trying to escort like a VIP from like one corner of the board to the other using a like a vehicle convoy, and I just think that's a cool mission. You know. That sounds mega, because I've got lots of tanks. That would look wicked. Yeah. Um, but yeah, speaking of <laughs> Maelstrom, uh, the, I had, did manage to get a chance to play a game the other week, but it was actually just a, a sort of standard pick-up-and-play Maelstrom game. Yeah. Um, so I played uh, Decapitation Strike, so it's the sort of standard 2018 Maelstrom mission format, except that um, if either player loses a character, you randomly lose one of your active objectives. Okay. Um, so That's... taking out characters Ooh, yeah. reduces mm, the... You spicy. Know, yeah, the sort of command uh, orders and all the rest of it. Yeah. Um, which is fun. But the key thing that was interesting about the game was it was my first opportunity to play against the new Space Marines Codex. And uh, mm. let me tell you, Invictus War suits are no joke. They are absolutely wicked, aren't they? What chapter were you up against? Uh, so I was up against an Ultramarine successor. Yeah. Um, which is also interesting that obviously I got to see the new, like, choose your own successor traits in effect and the sort of intricacies of how supplements and successor chapters work. Yeah. So, for example, uh, my opponent in this game was using Ultramarine successors, which meant that he was using, you know, the new Codex Space Marines and yep. 
the supplement for uh, for ultramarines. Ooh. But he'd created his own chapter tactics. So he wasn't using the ultramarine tactic. Yep. Um, he was using army-wide uh, reroll ones to hit with bolt weapons. Nice. And army-wide stealth. So if he's over 12 inches away, he's in cover. Yep. Um, I prefer that to the minus one to hit. That's been quite prevalent before it seems oh. to have been replaced with the plus one save. Well, yeah, I mean, that changed to the Raven Guard. Um, I imagine we're going to see sort of rolled out to things like Alley Attack and... Um, oh, sorry. Uh, not Alley Attack. Uh, DLA Talk, Eldar. Uh, yeah, Atalok and um, Stygies, is it? Stygies 8, yeah, for the Admech. Yeah. Um, but, yeah, the change where if you're over 12 inches away, you count as in cover. If you're over 12 inches away and in cover, you get the minus one to instead. Which means that the minus yeah. one is there, but it's also you have to jump through more hoops to get it. Yeah, it's part of another plus one to your save. Yeah, and it means that things like, in particular, aircraft aren't going to naturally stack minus two because an aircraft is never capable of being in cover. Yes. So it's never going to get the minus one. Um, it's going to be very difficult for the majority of vehicles to get the minus one to be. It's doable, but difficult. But what's quite work for nice. It. Yeah, but what is quite nice is having, you know, vehicles with quite often, like, say, a 2 plus save because they're in the open, but they're in cover because of the special rule. Anyway, um, having the successor version, though, just is doesn't have the minus one caveat. It's just the, uh, if you're over 12 inch, you're in cover. Yeah, mega. Uh, because, because you can combine it with something else, in this case, the reroll ones to hit with bolt weapons. However, even though those are his successor traits... Because he is a successor of the Ultramarines chapter, he's able to um, use all their stratagems and use their relics. Um, and in particular, he gets their uh, bonus to the combat doctrines. So yes. by being an Ultramarine successor, whenever he's in the tactical doctrine, he counts as stationary for firing. Yep. Um, so yeah, three guesses what units he had in his army. If he's really one to hit with bolt weapons, and he counts as stationary when in tactical, it has many, many aggressors. They got very spicy with their plus one wound as well. Uh, yes, uh, and attack because uh, yes, the, well, the, yeah, the aggressors got the... an extra attack because they've got two weapons, as it were. Yes. Yeah, yeah. then going from two wounds to three is a big difference. Yeah, ultramarine aggressors are no joke. Uh, when they're in tactical doctrine, they've got AP minus one on their uh, on their bolters, and they counter stationary even when moving. So suddenly being able to move and double tap is pretty ridiculous. And it's just him throwing dice at you into it. That's all that happens. Yeah, and although he himself did does not have the Ultramarines chapter tactic, so he doesn't native so he doesn't naturally have the ability to back out and fire. Uh, like fall back and shoot. Yeah. Because he can use the Ultramarine stratagems, there's a stratagem which lets a unit fall back and shoot and assault if it wants. To basically just act completely unaffected. Yep. So even though he can't do it all the time, if he wants to, he can have an aggressive unit step back and shoot twice. Because it counts as stationary, um, Jesus. and then and then assault you. Yeah. 
Yeah. <laughs> that sounds it, fun. It was, it was pretty mean. Um, but I have to say, like, Space Marines, they feel like Space Marines now. Yeah, I've got the new book. Uh, I'm waiting for Crimson Fists because I've got a I got Shadow Spear and painted some of the Marines up to be Crimson Fists. I think as soon as we get a, it'll be like Sons of Dawn or or a Fist successor supplement. I will hit Space Marines like the side of a barn. Yeah, like, I think Crimson Fists are a good choice as well. I think they're a really characterful chapter. Um, if it wasn't the fact that you know I've painted all these Death Skulls blue, I'd been tempted to get some Crimson Fists, but. I've, I think my heart yeah. remains the Raven Guard, like the actual core Raven Guard. If I was ever going to pick up a chapter for myself, but um, yep, yeah. So anyway, uh, we played the game, and so even though there were twelve Ultraman aggressors <laughs> over the table, good for lord. Me, thankfully, I bring mechanized orcs, so yep. I did not have you know just mobs and mobs of orcs ready to be picked up by those bolt rounds. Don't get me wrong, they were harsh. Um, and I had to really be careful with what targets I put in front of them. Um, it's surprising what the um, the bonuses you can give the unit really makes. Because so previously, my usual answer to aggressors is I actually just rock up in a battle wagon because yep. aggressors find it really hard to deal with a battle wagon because it's yes they do being T eight. Um, they wound it on sixes, so even though they may put out a million shots, the fact they yep. only wound it on sixes and they don't modify its armor save, so then it has a focal save, and then it's got 16 wounds, aggressors actually kind of struggle to you know pull apart a battle wagon even with their weight of fire. Yeah, they've got to work. However, when they've got the tactical doctrine and suddenly they've got uh, AP minus one and now I'm only on five plus saves... And he's got a chaplain nearby who's giving them the litany of plus one to wound, which is now turning those wound rolls into five pluses rather than sixes. Yes. Suddenly they are capable of uh, stripping a battle wagon. It might take them a couple of volleys, but the issue is they tend to put out a million volleys a turn. <laughs> yes, they do. Like, his turn, fire twice. Overwatch, fire twice. So, so my battle wagon actually has to take four volleys from the unit before it even gets into combat just to try and tag them and even then he's an ultramarine so he's just going to pop his strat so that he can back out and Retreat shoot anyway <laughs> um, but because I did I, I made one key mistake which uh, sort of threw my game plan off a little bit was um, there's a wonderful orc stratagem called boarding action that allows you oh, to oh yes um, that's a that's a wicked one I love that one. I use it so often because it allows my unit of Mega Nobs and Mega Round Warboss to actually attack from the back of the battle wagon so they don't have to hop out. They can just uh, swing one attack each in the back of the wagon. But, and this is a bit I forgot until I'd already engaged the aggressors, and I went to use the strat and then I realised my mistake. You could only use it to target another enemy vehicle. Right. So I can't hit infantry with it. Boo. Even though they're pretty big infantry. Yeah, they're basically like vans. Yeah. So ultimately, I did find myself out of position. So like the Mega Nobs were able to jump out and they did wither a storm of Bolt of Fire, but they did ultimately kill that unit of aggressors. Like between them and the war boss, they did get in there and they did pull them apart. But yeah. unfortunately, they, they were sort of like the, the last cannon from afar afterwards and that did not go well for them. 
No. But um, it was a fun game, though. Um, one of the things that was actually really nice was there was a lot of fighting going on on multiple levels of the buildings that we had in the middle of the board. Um, yeah. And that's because my various units of truck boys, basically the trucks just kept rocking up to the buildings and then disgorging orc boys into them that then went rampaging through infiltrators and eliminators. Yeah, awesome. And then they would emerge out of the building looking for the next objective slash target and then get gunned down by aggressors. Yay! (laughs) But it looked really cool and was a lot of fun actually, like, sieging these buildings. That's all that matters. It was, like, a couple of objectives up there. They had fun killing um, the... The new librarian, uh, what's it called? The, like the Furboss librarian. Yeah. Um, there was a jump pack uh, chaplain that we leapt on at one point, and the Invictus war suits promptly got mobbed by orc boys and a weird boy, and um, what was the other thing I saw? Oh, the Boomdacker snows wagons, um, which go blasting in, and when they die, they explode on a four plus, so they inflict a few mortal wounds on their way out. Have a lot of fun, but I have to say, I think the Evictus Warsuit is pretty much the epitome of the modern day distraction counterfix. Yes. Because starting, you know, basically anywhere because they'll infiltrate, so they're probably only good at, they're probably going to be within 12 inches of your line if you deploy on the line. Yep. And if the Space Room player is going first or has a good likelihood of going first, Time Victor's Warsuit's only like 12 inches away, and it's like got a 10 inch move before it charges. Yeah, it's so, a silly bit of kit. Yeah, having a dreadnought that's just right there and staring you down is actually kind of intimidating, but at the same time, you, you can't ignore it, it's because it's right there. Yeah, it feels so, like they're a bit more dangerous now. Uh, I love the Redemptor model, I remember when it first came out, I was all over it but it needs either to lose the deteriorating stat line or not suffer the penalty for moving and firing heavy weapons. Either of those would make it amazing. Yeah, I think um, not suffering the penalty to moving and firing would be good. But you know what uh, What Dreadnought saw market, which Redemptors don't suffer the penalty to moving and firing heavy weapons? Which one's that? Ultramarine ones in Tactical Doctrine. Of course. <laughs> so... Oh, look at me, I'm all blue! Yeah, nothing wrong with blue. It's lucky. No, mate. No, we like blue. <laughs> we like blue on an orc. We don't like yes. it on an Umi. <laughs> Bless their souls. Um, but yeah, it, it was a fun game. I'd say. Basically, the game was spent um, mobbing infiltrators and um, Invictus warsuits whilst attempting to deal with aggressors. And only partially succeeding in that fact. <laughs> and then unfortunately by the end of the game, just basically got um, blown off the table eventually. But there was struggles on both sides. But you had a good time and that's all that matters. Yeah, it was a lot of fun. It was, I say, it was really interesting seeing the new Space Marine Codex. Yeah, and like you learn the next time. Oh yeah, like uh, I realised my mistake is uh, I'm not allowed to... Uh, perform a boarding action on an aggressor. Just jump out the truck and hit him. What's I don't understand yeah. where the lack of logic is. No matter how fun it would be, uh, apparently my mega knobs are not capable of boarding an aggressor or <laughs> or a grievous warsuit. 
<laughs> it's much like my uh, my desire for my Astra Militarum Stormlord, which I use for my Gene Stealer cult, to be able to have Gene Stealers inside of it, just so I could park it in the middle of the board and then vomit 40 Gene Stealers at everyone. But no, someone's got to balance the game. <laughs> no no Gene Stealers in the Chimera. Oh, well. No, just vomit them everywhere. <laughs> I think that actually happens in one of the um, Cyphus game books. I think there's like... Because there's a couple of Gene Stealer cults in there that you uproots. I yeah. think there's like um effectively equivalent like a cargo lorry, like a civilian one that yeah. um, just comes rocking up at one point um in when the cultists obviously trying to kill Kane because I think he's escaped from their hideout or whatever. And basically yeah. they, they just bring this lorry up and like uh, blockade the road and they just pop they like the back door off it and these uh, pure strains just come like sprinting out of it. <laughs> Brilliant. See, it can happen. It can happen. Um, yeah, I think that's about everything from our games played. So I'm hopefully gonna have another one lined up in a couple of weeks' time. So I might have played that one by the time we get to the next episode, which would be nice because that one's awesome. probably gonna be against the Death Guard. But it might be a more narrative game. I'm maybe looking at trying to do one of the Crucible missions from Vigilus. Hopefully, Don't sounds good. <laughs> Um, so I think, you know, an hour 20 in is probably a good time to, uh, move on to our main topic. <laughs> let's. So let's do that. We'll be back in a second, guys. And we're back, guys. And we're now going to actually discuss tonight's main topic. So we've talked uh, a fair bit already about the different ways that you can play the game and many of the previous episodes of the podcast have focused on lots of ways to make your individual games more interesting or narrative or just spice them up with some really interesting cool scenarios or you know as chris and jake prefer with a doomsday device whatever explodes your boat um however one of the things that we've not had a chance to discuss on the show yet is actual campaigns and running a campaign and all the different ways you can do it and all the different tools at your disposal and the way that you make you know, like multiple games sort of like linked together or just meaningful and you just sort of create a larger story in your hobby and uh, you've got a few different ideas on the subject haven't you Christy you'd like to talk about? I do uh, this is one of my big passions for almost all my war games, certainly Warhammer 40,000, and it stems from playing Command & Conquer and RTS games as a child uh, and wanting a story to be told when I'm playing a game. It's all well and good turning up and playing a 2,000-point game at Maelstrom at War and, oh, yep, great, brilliant, yep, cool, you win, awesome, yeah, same time next week. You know, that's great, and I enjoy that as much as the next dude, but I want to go away from a game and think, right, what's going to happen in the next game? What's going to happen to my characters? What's going to happen to the world we're fighting on? Uh, so that's kind of my systemic love of campaigns intertwined into how I do my hobby and who I do my hobby with. Yeah, because it's probably true of most people that they have probably one or two primary opponents that they've played the most. You know, a close friend, maybe a you know, a family member, whoever, you know, just a sort of go-to person they play a lot. And even without meaning to, you could probably end up developing a little bit of an eternal narrative between some of your armies because you probably have grud matches or you remember those key times that that one person's warlord killed the other or they won that game yeah, for sure. that one unit stuck through. And 
it's kind of taking that concept and like blowing it up and uh, like writing that large on a, a bigger narrative quite often perhaps with multiple players and stuff and uh, sometimes unless you put a little more active effort into it that doesn't happen as naturally on that scale but when you make it happen it's brilliant absolutely um so one of the most important things about starting up a campaign or even just gauging the you know the temperature for a campaign is have a chat with the guys in your gaming group if you're on a facebook page or a discord or whatever with people who play games at your local club drop a message like i've got this idea for a campaign what do people think uh then you can come up with your own ideas you can bounce ideas off one another uh and it comes down to what do you want the campaign to do do you want it to be like a league or a tournament which shows people escalating their armies up in points to ultimately become the victor of the the event or do you want to just tell a story of a world that's being besieged by yours and your friends armies or do you want it to tell the story of the progression of the characters in the armies do you want it to be the folks on a warlord who's gone from uh, a meager gene stealer cult neophyte right up the way to a magus who serves the patriarch so it all depends on what you want it to do now uh, one of the best things I've had when it came to campaigns is I got the Urban Conquest box set from Games Workshop that came out start of the year, maybe? Yeah, it looks... Maybe I a little bit later? Fe- I think it was February, but it looked so good. I, yeah. I just I didn't quite have the funds or the uh, like the community, like a local playgroup to play with at the time, otherwise I would have picked it up, but I think it looks awesome. It is. I mean, it's got all the cities of death rules in there, um, all the different rules for battlefield terrain, stratagems that can be used specifically for certain missions, battle zone rules, narrative missions, match play missions. Uh, it's obviously got the. It's known as the shower curtain map, which is the polyvinyl <laughs> map with the cards and the sectors that you build. So from there, you can build the environment that you're going to be playing in. Uh, almost as good as that is the old planetary empire set, if you can find one. Yeah, I've occasionally seen them going on uh, like eBay and such, and I do think they are good if you can get your hands on them. I would sell parts of my anatomy to get a set of that. I remember <laughs> we had one left in my store, and a customer came in who wanted it, and it was one of those, I'll get it one day, I'll get it one day. Uh, and then a customer came in and asked for one, and I said, oh yeah, I've got one downstairs. And I curse myself on the weekly for that. <laughs> curse me being it was a meant to person. be mine yes it was mine i held it in my hands and looked at it several lunch breaks ago um <laughs> but again that's if you want a map some people can do some really mega stuff on excel and just have a spreadsheet dictating mm. like a linear campaign of a sector and how you're going to play there and what the missions will be i did see um the other month someone had created a like digital artwork piece for the Necromunda campaign they were running over in the Chronicles group and that oh, had like custom like art assets and stuff and he'd created this like hex um, hexagon sort of like pattern board where everything was clearly delineated as to what was adjacent to what and who controlled what territories and it was really clever and really well done that was an entirely like bespoke piece he'd done himself and it, that was just a digital asset it's amazing that people can make this stuff and share it with the community, but I find it fascinating that a lot of people my age, and you can't be too dissimilar to me, mate, uh, will get so excited about 22 men kicking a bit of leather about a field, but show me a spreadsheet <laughs> dictating a fictional world yeah. which people can play plastic toy soldiers 
in order to try and siege it, it blows my mind. Yeah, like I think it's funny when um, like my missus is really into um, like British history and like particularly the history of, like the monarchs and the wars and um, so like the Victorian and Tudor sort of periods and stuff. Um, yeah, and it's funny how. Like she can recount things like you know some of the details like the Battle of Lancaster or um, like what happened to particular members of the royal family after certain events in you know in whatever year and all the rest of it and she can she can tell you all these things in particular about these periods of time in British history. Yeah, and I'm like that's cool. I don't know any of that myself. It sounds very interesting, and I'm sure you find that as fascinating as. I find the events of the free wars for Armageddon. I was going to say, but <laughs> you know? does she know the dif- does she know the difference between the Mark Six and Mark Five classes of power armor? <laughs> she she does not, but she could well, probably tell you the differences in the what it meant to be um, in social standings of in different uh, courtly intrigues at the time. Yes, but and that's know. that's what makes us all human. That's that's why we're so we're such wonderful people. Yeah, and I think it's funny that you know she can get that sort of joy about knowing those sort of things and that depth of knowledge and yeah, and the exact same thing with like the bad ab war or the age of apostrophe or yeah. whatever like you know one <laughs> day on ma- mastermind mate one day on mastermind yeah the, the only difference is that technically her stuff happened whereas yes my stuff is yet to happen it happened mate i'm i'm putting my finger on my heart it happened here <laughs> yeah <laughs> brilliant um so back to back to the campaigns. So, for example, um, another just about to record, another thing about campaigns is don't adhere to a book or a rule set. There's nothing stopping you going. Oh, I really like the map from Urban Conquest. Oh, that's cool. I really like the Cities of Death rule from a uh, chapter approved. Oh, I really like the um, this mission from Montcar from Old Seventh Edition. Oh, how can we tweak that to the current edition? It's all about having that conversation and you know. Mm building that excitement and make sure you're all playing the games you want to play because at the end of the day it's a social hobby where you're all wanting to spend time together to benefit each other and have a wicked time of it so if you're all taking part in the planning and make sure the execution is going to be what you want it to be some of the best times you'll have in the hobby are those linked games with friends yeah and i've seen some instances of people creating their own sort of like bespoke method of tracking like campaign victories or successes or whatever, and, it, and it's not based on one pre-published version, but it'll probably be drawing from a few different sources and different places. It's this definite, and again, it comes from this preconception of, oh, I thought we we're going to play a War or Maelstrom. It's like, yes, we can, or we can stretch beyond the box mm. and look at this and do this and have something you know completely new that no one's ever done before. I think like most Eternal War Maelstrom stuff lends itself primarily to effectively like a ladder campaign yeah, and, and less so to a narrative one. So it's like, yeah, sure, it's fine to be able to just keep a, a track of who's won the most games at your local club every week. But yeah. really, that isn't so deeply tying the rich narrative of everybody's armies and forces and the games they've played. Yeah, and once more it comes down to, do you want to play a story game or do you want to play a win or loss game? Some people can't stand the thought of playing a narrative game because there's things that aren't what they deem to be coherently balanced and there's no definitive win or loser. Cool, that's their hobby. They can play Maelstrom and Eternal War 
until their eyes bleed. There's nothing wrong with that and all power to them. Likewise, there's people who are off-put by competitive gaming uh, and see the meta change so regularly that it puts them off their hobby and makes them feel a little bit intimidated by it. So they might just want to roll some dice and have some casual small games. It's all about, again, the conversation you have with the people you play with. Whereas uh, I've known some people that really, really enjoy um, playing into the particular character of the individuals in their gameplay. Like, um, I knew someone once who, when playing in a narrative campaign, he was using a chaos force, but it was like an undivided force, so it included a few different um, god-aligned members. And he had a Khorn Chaos Lord... Um, and a Zinchian sorcerer within his force, and it, it made perfect sense within his force because it was like this mixed Black Legion force. Yeah. But when he played it on the table, <laughs> he literally always made sure that the sorcerer and the Corn Lord stayed as physically far apart on the board as he could, because they yeah, because otherwise to be near, one's going to get a headache be and try and kill the other. <laughs> yeah, they refused to be near each other; like they would not cooperate. So he, like, he refused to cast powers on any of the Corn units. Yep. you know, like benefits or boons, and they stayed away from each other as much as possible because they would not get along. Um, yeah, and that's and amazing. That's playing to the spirit and the theme of the, the characters you're playing with. And for me personally, I'm all I'm all about, you know, that ridiculous, in the real world, what would happen? Obviously, in the real world, none of it will happen because it's not real, but it's yeah. putting, <laughs> your, putting, your, in putting yourself world. in that perspective. Yeah, yeah. I, 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 I used to say to my mates, as soon as they say during a game, yes, but in real life, they automatically lose. <laughs> yeah. I, I know someone who um, recently, I believe there's a, a Blood Angel stratagem that lets you make a character become like a member of the Death Company, don't they, for the game nice. or whatever? Um, yeah. I think it's the Death Visions or Sanguinius or something like that. Um, and he was playing with like a, you know, a big unit of Death Company and Lavartes and then like this Smash Captain who was like a Death Company guy. But Yep, Flying he, Librarian Dreadnoughts as well? Uh, no, actually. But the point was was that because the captain in the narrative has fallen to the Black Rage um, and Lamartes is meant to be herding the members of the Death Company, he kept the captain with the Death Company and Lamartes all the time. That's good. He, he wasn't off doing his own thing because as far as the, like, the fighting forces are concerned now, the captain's basically just a member of the <laughs> Death Company. So he's, he's being directed by Lamartes. Which I thought was cool. Not just like, oh yeah, we use this powerful strat to make this awesome guy even more awesome, and he's going to go over there and kill that key. It's like, no, he's he's he's, he's fallen to the black rage, so he's going to be hanging out with the crazy guys. Yeah, and that's that's awesome. Those little bits are the the, the ones you remember and the ones you you know you have banter about. Uh, my my war boss is notorious for just going after the biggest vehicle in the enemy army wherever it is because he has. to Yeah, smash that makes up perfect the sense. <laughs> Very much, see that boy is hold my grog. Yeah. <laughs> Amazing. So, yeah, and again, it's depending on the games you want to play and what you want your campaign to look like, have the conversation, have that meet-up, get some beers in uh, and plan what you want the event to look like, when do you want it to start, and what does everyone want to gain from it. So, in preparation, my brother and I have been having a chat about a campaign we're going to run, with me having, um, obviously full-time commitments now at home i'm able to dedicate one evening a week to dedicated to purely playing games with him so we are doing our campaign it's set in the otec hive sprawl of vigilus 
And the game types or the game systems we're going to be using during that campaign are Kill Team, Warhammer 40,000 8th Edition, and <laughs> this this came about suddenly, Aeronautica Imperialis. Yeah, it's uh, interesting to see that back, isn't it? It's kind of it is. <laughs> Again, it was one of those from the blue. one of those Saturday mornings at, at uh, my Warhammer store, and it was like, oh yeah, this looks really cool. I love the models. Half an hour later, pre-order, 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 pre-order. <laughs> yeah, I've had a friend kind of like hassling me to get it. I'm just like, I don't have the money, or to be honest, for time. <laughs> yes, absolutely. Uh, so me and my brother Kenny, we said we're going to do a kill team campaign for ages. He wants to use his word bearers. I want to use my gene stealer cult. Both of those were on Vigilus. Uh, so we've gone through the books. We're picking missions that we want to play. And I said, oh, I've got Urban Conquest. So why don't we? Because there's a great segment in Urban Conquest about playing kill team games within the campaign as opposed to conventional 8th edition games. Oh, I didn't know that. That's a cool touch. Why don't we build our sector using the Urban Conquest map and then we can conquer for each different kind of sector within the Otec High Sprawl. Yeah, cool, great idea. So from there, we then thought, what else can we do to make it, as opposed to 12 Kill Team games set in this place, what can we do to make it special? So I came up with some custom bonus benefits for conquering specific kill zones within the region. So if you capture a Sector from Terrace, which is the kind of deserty, outposty, ruidy uh, Rise of Ruin box that they did for Kill Team. They're really good at us. If you conquer this sector, uh, if you've been victorious in this kill zone, roll a d6 at the start of your next game before deployment begins. On a roll of a 5+, plus, you gain one additional command point for this game. And various mm-hmm. other little factors that can increase your reputation and your uh, facilities and your resources. So you've got that progression, as well as the narrative and the character building for the models in your Kill Team. Then, intermittently, you'll play a game of Warhammer 40,000, which reflects the wider conflict on in the Eotech Hive Sprawl, uh, and that will impact your Kill Team games with various resources, maybe some characters will be subsided because they were injured during the game. Uh, and then, this this was literally, I think it was Monday night, I rang him, I was like, Kenny, we need to get Aeronautica Imperialis. Why? Because we're going to have planes fighting above our battles on Vigilus. That sounds interesting. So I'm currently looking at how Aeronautica Imperialis can impact our 40k games with things like if you won your previous game of Aeronautica Imperialis you get a free strafing run on your in your next 40k game and basically get a free orbital bombardment for your army from your book that, that's a cool idea like I think that's one of the really useful tools to incentivize well not incentivize I guess but reward victories is little things like that it's not going to absolutely swing the result of the next game if you get to have a free smite on anything other than a character at any point you know but just being able to say do that is really cool and representative of like see a previous victory and little bonuses like that are a nice little added touch yeah and it's i mean our our group messages are pigging innumerate times a day but it's oh i've thought about this what do you think oh that sounds good what about this yeah that sounds good um how about this or is this a little bit silly it's like it's a little bit overpowered but let's do it this way yeah cool and it's make sure there's that constant communication because it's it's a game and a rule set you're basically designing with your friends and how it impacts your games and the the result you want it to have is down to you guys 
I think a good example of that is um, what was actually going on in the Hades campaign uh, in, in sort of like the, the Leeds area where we created custom characters using yep. the custom character uh, rules in Chapter Approved, but there had been a lot of discussion and debate in the like you know the chats and stuff to agree on like a pointing system for those abilities because yes. the, the chapter approved book just um just indiscriminately creates a list of abilities you can assign to your your know, custom characters without yep. any sort of structured balancing to them because some of it is you know distinctly some of the abilities are distinctly stronger than others or yep. are particularly um valuable in certain things like i know there was um discussion for a while on the idea of a tank commander getting the plus one toughness like status but it's like suddenly if you're looking at a t9 lehman russ that's a big difference compared to a t5 space marine captain you know again yeah. rather than a t4 one so yeah last cannon's wounding anything on on a fives is making me sweat a little bit or four sorry it'd be fours wouldn't it because they're straight nine <laughs> yeah so like your melter weapons wounding on fives yeah that's the weird part um so we created like a point system uh, like an allocation so at the start of the campaign you got to spend like five of these hero points on abilities from um the, the list in the book but some of them were like worth three of your five points and some were worth one or two and um, we we would randomly roll to determine what stat buff uh, weapon the character was wielding got rather than just picking it because again like if you say oh I'm going to take a melter with auto loader so it gets an extra shot it's like oh, okay so, so my combi melter is suddenly a, a, like an assault 2 melter that's, that's a, a little difference. bit better than um, you know you can cast one extra psychic power great I play tile yeah or having like a, a bolt rifle that's got an extra shot is like mm, big difference. Yay! <laughs> having, yeah, having um, having like a a flamer or something that gets plus three inch on its range is a, you know a big difference to a bolt pistol getting plus three inch on its range. Yeah. Yes, exactly. <laughs> um, so there's, there's there was a conversation to be had about that because we knew we wanted to create these custom characters and that's how like you know. Zagdreg was born, it's how Snazgul was uh, born, all the rest of it. Like, and a whole bunch of these unique characters, and they really, I think that's one of the key things to really making your horse feel personalised, is one, naming your characters. Yep. Um, and two, getting in the mindset of who it is and what it is they do, what do they do to show up, what's their goal, their motivation, whatever. It just has to be a sentence. It doesn't have to be huge, but if you just, if you just name your Space Marine Captain... And name a thing that he is known for doing. Or, yeah, just just or... a sentence of that little bit of narrative. It makes such an investment into who mm. they are. And when it comes to actual narrative campaigns, adding that little extra bit of an uh, extra bonus rule or a stat line increase just to represent that aspect of their personality. And maybe you agree that over the length of the campaign, every quarter or every so many weeks or months, the characters gain a new ability or a new style increase and you really feel them developing. And I think that is one thing that's a really strong contender for creating a good campaign is having a sense of progression. So not just 
linked games. Like, if I won the previous Aeronautica game, I get an airstrike next one. Yeah. In addition, you're like, ah, but my, my DACA jet has actually been piloted by, you know, I don't know, Buzzbrain, Flyboy, McShooty, whatever, you know. That's my favourite character from the whole series, mate. <laughs> and, like, he's known for hunting over aircraft. So if you're ever playing a game and there are any other enemy aircraft, your DACA jet is going to be relentlessly hunting it down, even if you'd be better served that turn shooting yeah. those guardsmen off that objective that you need. Like, no, because he doesn't care about shooting those guardsmen. He wants to shoot down enemy aircraft. Yes, that's <laughs> that's his jam. That's what he's all about. Yeah, and you know, it, that will really carry through from game to game, creating a little bit of character. And if you can find ways to represent that in the rules as well, brilliant. You know, go for it. You know, that's great. But I think that one of the key things to creating a strong narrative campaign is having some named characters, like your own personal named characters. I ran a, I ran a campaign whatever. recently with um, the guys I used to work with, and uh, I found the, actually the document I did when I designed the campaign. So it was based around our army warlords. Each player chooses their army's warlord. This remains of the warlord and must be present in every battle. Once they have been chosen, give them a name and a cool bit of backstory as to why they're involved in our conflict. Then each player rolls for their chosen warlord from the hero brackets four table in the custom chapter segment of chapter approved. Uh, character segment, sorry. So again, that's where you get the tables to roll off, but you can give them an increment which dictates how many abilities they can have. So we had it so that after this, each second game, you would get access to another ability. Well, that's cool. Because again, then you then you can see that progression. So at the start of the campaign, um, what did my get? My what was her name? Magus Naladia, emissary of the Star Saviors. Uh, she had a force stave called the Patriarch's Eye, uh, and she got uh, plus one to deny rolls in the psychic phase, which is cool because she's a psyker and she's all about supporting the Patriarch. Um, because, like you say, that progression is really important and that keeps people invested in the campaign. Because we all play campaigns that fizzle out or people start dropping out really early on or people who said they could commit then can't. So you keep them invested by having character development, which is why Kill Team is so good for it, because you've got that automatic, what do they do this game? They get X amount of XP, they can go up this skill tree, or they get this special equipment, or uh, they die and take them off your roster. Mm-hmm. Well, I have to say, I think there was a, a really good idea that um, played out really well Um the other year when I was looking at doing this like campaign thing with a group of friends and um, it was it was a little bit like an escalation concept but it wasn't that we scaled the army size game after game it was that we had varying army lists at different points values yeah. and basically the idea was it helped we were, we were going to be playing like a planetary empires style um, map-based campaign. Love planetary uh, empires. Yeah, it, it's great. But we wanted to also create this larger sense of um, a grand army across the planet. You know, like you, you had you did you didn't have one army that was constantly trekking backwards and forwards all different war zones. You had different forces from your race deployed across the war fronts of the planet. Um, and so you had like a basically an army wide roster that you could then pick and choose what went to what mission. Sort of, 
similar concept, different execution. What we actually had yeah. was we had six different army lists at six different points values. And the idea was every game, when you came when you rolled up with your opponent, you could either um choose the points value you were gonna play or randomize it. Like if you if you knew you were going like a club night and you're only gonna have two hours, you might play a smaller game. If you were gonna yeah. be around someone's house and you had all afternoon, you might play a two thousand point game. But you know, you could randomize it or you could sort of pick. But the idea was that each of those six different army lists were actually six different forces yep. um deployed across the planet. And the way that that was distinguished was that we had six different warlords for each of the lists. So that was the actual leader and named character of that force. Of that said force, yeah. So across your six lists, you couldn't have any duplicated warlock traits or any duplicated relics because those were like that warlord with that piece of gear. Yeah. was the ones leading that force. Um, so it was it was really interesting that it led to some unusual situations and character builds that you wouldn't typically have had. So although it wasn't strictly written, so we all made it so that our like head honcho warlord was leading the 2,000-point army. Like, they were the big yeah. warlord. Um, so like, we had an Ultramarines player who his 2,000-point army was led by Gulliman. Standard. His, his 1750 was led by uh, Marnius Calga. Yep. And his um, 1500 was led by um, the captain of the second company. You, that, that was the idea, so he actually had like this chain of command. Yeah, like the same. Um, yeah, which makes sense, I suppose. Uh, whereas I had like, right, I had my Mega Round War Boss, so I had Zagdrig himself was leading my 2000 point army. And he'd be like, yep. right, well, he's got the Warlord. Um, he had the warlord trait uh, uh, might makes right because I was like, yep. well, if I'm going to have six warlords who are meant to be representing these old forces, well, of course, the big boss, like the big honcho in charge, he's going to have the warlord trait might makes right. Standard. <laughs> he has, you know, he's the big boss over all the others. Then, like, my 1750 was led by a big mech who um, he had, like, the fixer uppers relic because he was the right hand mech of my boss. So he had the best mech's tools because he was the best mech and yeah then like the 1500 point force was led by uh, a, a weird boy with a warlord tree and he had the uh, the relic of plus one to cast smite because realistically i was my alt codex only has about seven like six or seven relics so i was like right well i can't have duplicate relics on these lists because that's the relic of that warlord yeah. So I ended up with like my thousand point list was led by um, like a war boss with the dead shiny shooter. Excellent. <laughs> um, I think my seventeen fifty was led by a death killer war trike with something I can't remember what, but um, I think I had a war boss in one of the lists who had the git stopper shells and the opportunist warlord trait. So he had like a really fancy shooter and the ability to shoot characters, <laughs> and it's kind of like a loadout that I would never have written or used in a normal list, but in my campaign, he was a notorious character killer, even though he's like a random orc or boss shooting things. And yeah. then he gained infamy and like, you know, he was then like known and like, became a known character in his own right sort of thing. And, and he forges his own narrative. And again, that's that's where you get these ideas of 
I'm going to paint him slightly differently. I'm going to make him a new model and give him all this really cool gear to really reflect who he is. I'm going to do a diorama of him on a big base with a model he was fighting. And it's just how it inspires and encourages your hobby to progress and challenge you to, you know, really get into the spirit of it. Hmm. And then I have to say as well, I think two other things that are worth mentioning is one, if you are playing a campaign that's got like multiple players and say you've got different availabilities so some people are able to play every week and some are only to play once a month or whatever i think one of the things that's been really good in my previous experiences is having a particular big event or game night that maybe happens once a month yeah where you know everyone is gonna be part of that game night so you can have yeah, like exactly. smaller battles and skirmishes are happening throughout the campaign all month but you all know it's going to lead up to one particular um event evening and it doesn't have to mean it's like one big apocalypse battle everyone takes part it could just yeah. be a normal gaming evening where you know all 10 of you show up and play five games but the games that night are meant to be representing more key moments in the narrative of the campaign because everyone is there everyone is present yeah and there's a great chance for you all then to chime in and say oh what do you think is going to happen next in the story uh what's going to be the offshoot of this uh and again it's making sure that the the narrative stays to what you want it to be and that the campaign stays to what your original intent of it was to be. So mm. I think by the end of mine and Kenny's campaign, uh, we'll probably have some really highly leveled up kill teams. We might organise an apocalypse game to reflect the final conflict for the battle, for the battle of the Otec Hive Sprawl. Yeah, yeah and it's just in, ensuring you're playing for the right purposes and not being worried about how is he so powerful or why have I lost so many games? It's think about the story it's telling and the impact it's having there. Yeah. I think that's a key takeaway. And I think, I think it would probably worth being a subject of another episode another night, but I think a lot of people can assume that a campaign is something that you need lots of multiple players to play. And in yeah. fact, I think some of the really really deep and interesting campaigns can be just two-player campaigns. You can yeah, some of the like... best campaigns I've played have been with Kenny, and sometimes it's been like skirmish games that we've played six or seven of in a day, and we've had a wicked time of it and told a great story and still talk about them now. And I think you have an opportunity to go really deep on certain narrative missions. That's, that's the kind of campaign where you can create a really linear story where you can really say, it like, right, we're going to be playing out... Um, an orc war besieging this imperial world well this imperial world is defended by the crimson fists you know and every game you're going to play for that entire campaign is always going to be orcs versus crimson fists but yeah. you and you're probably going to have a lot of similar components maybe even in the army lists that you use if you've not got the hugest collections but that doesn't mean that you can't game one play a planet strike mission game two play a a big pitch battle like Crucible mission, then game three be assaulting a, a stronghold assault or something. Yeah, I mean, how many books do we 40k players have with different missions in to keep your your campaign? Like you say, if it's two two armies fighting each other throughout a campaign of two players, mm. grab some of those books, go through them, look at a mission, and think, God, that looks like fun. Let's do that. Uh, yeah. There'll be some way you think I've got no chance. The orcs are going to smash me, and then there'll be some others where you'll think this will be a cakewalk. What am I going to do? It's yeah. you know think... keeping it keeping it variable i think it could actually be quite an interesting exercise with people where if say 
if just right now in your hobby, um, you've got one regular opponent who say you can play like every week, but you you don't because well, what's the point of just constantly playing Maelstrom missions over and over if you're both going to keep using the same Tau and Eldar lists, whatever. Well, why don't you use that as an opportunity to say, right, why don't we play over the next month? We'll play four games using the exact same army lists and the same two armies, but try and play four radically different scenarios and missions. You could even, if you want, plan them in advance so you know that what the four missions are going to be, what order you're going to play them in, and you can try and write a single army list that's going to be versatile enough to win all four of those games, even if one of them is a siege game and then one of them is a, like, escort the convoy and then one of them is a last stand. You know, like, that would be an interesting way for just two players who only have the means to play each other regularly, but they can still play very varied games and play a linked narrative campaign for those six weeks. Yeah, another another way to do it would be each of you has a component that you do um, in secret in like secrecy from the other. So, for instance, if you've got a two-player campaign and you're doing eight missions, you pick one mission, they pick the second, third, fourth, fifth, sixth, and you keep them secret from one another. So you'll have the advantage of knowing what the mission is when you turn up, but then they won't. And then yeah, that goes back and back idea. and forth that way. Yeah, that's cool. That'd be an interesting way of doing it. Yeah, and it, it, another thing is environments. Like, I'm pretty sure your Death World table that you're doing for your place is going to have some <laughs> mega interesting rules. Oh yeah, definitely. The, uh, the I, I played um I, I played a game of Warcry the other day, um, and one of the random twist cards was you're in a freezing cold blizzard. If your models don't make a move action, they take a mortal wound because they're freezing to death. I was like, oh my god. That would, so if, if for 40k we did that, if you didn't move a unit of 10 infantry, roll 10 dice on a 6, one takes a mortal wound. Amazing. They're literally freezing to death. I still want to play the uh, Arctic Tundra Battlezone. I haven't had to play it yet. But I will yeah, do. Yeah, I've, I've, I've got a snow table, which I use and I love it. It's probably my favourite zone to play on. And again, it's taking inspiration from thinking, oh my god, wouldn't this be cool? Well, do it. Yeah. We'll have to. Um, yeah. So the plan, so yeah. the, rounding up, the plan with this campaign is we're going to start. We're meeting up this week to talk about it. We're going to go see Alien and Aliens in the uh, National Space Center in Leicester Planetarium, which is nerd paradise, as far as I'm concerned. <laughs> uh, we're going to finalize stuff then, and then if people are interested, I'll gladly throw links up. I'm going to do a newsletter with regular updates, and I'll put it in the narrative gamer group with regular updates on what's going on with lots of pictures awesome i look forward to seeing it and so you'll have to keep us updated with how it goes and again and if anyone um, wants any advice on campaigns or they've got some cool ideas they want to bounce off please talk to me it, it literally my hobby is talking to people about my hobby and we we'd love to hear the sort of things that um that you guys have uh, played in the past any memorable campaigns or like any memorable characters or moments from them i'd love to hear about them you know if, if you want to join the facebook group tell us all about it on there if you want to drop us an email with anything that's particularly spectacular and stands out and you'd like to talk about you know we'll hear all of it leave comments below just all sorts like i do feel like the, the show now is starting to really develop a following and develop a community and it's great to hear 
all you guys discussing stuff and showing us stuff and more is better. You know, like, yeah, the more take part, is, get involved. But yeah, definitely. Um, so yeah, I think that's a very broad overview of running uh, narrative campaigns and I think perhaps in a future episode we might dig into some very, like dedicated mechanics to running certain campaigns and say there's a whole bunches of different ones you can try like linear ones map based faction based escalation all sorts like we could do whole episodes on them and we probably will because there's tons of stuff to talk about but I think for today that's a a good overview of uh, campaigns and then uh, speaking of upcoming campaigns I think it'll be worth moving over now to the news and new releases section do you enjoy awesome narrative 40k games as much as we do? Do you wish there was more narrative play content online you could enjoy? Narrative Wargamer aims to be more than just a podcast. Our goal is to become a wider platform for narrative 40k content creation. Right now we are just starting out, but you can already find 40k articles and gaming posts on our website at narrativewargamer.wordpress.com. We also aim to develop the Narrative Wargamer YouTube channel with narrative battle reports, custom missions, expanded gameplay rules and much more. If you would like to see awesome content like this, then please support the show via the Narrative Wargamer Patreon page. The support from our patrons helps us produce the show and expand our range of future content. You can support the show from as little as $2 a month and it really is the best way to show us you are enjoying our work and are excited to see more. With your support, Narrative Wargamer can become the number one provider of narrative player content from the Grim Dark. And we're back into news and new releases. Things have lined up quite nicely, actually, how we've been discussing this episode about running 40k campaigns, and the big news out of Games Workshop, really, in the last sort of week or so, is a little more hints of what this big psychic awakening is going to be. And it, to be honest, it's looking quite interesting and I'm excited for it. So if you've not seen it, definitely go check out the Warhammer community post all about it. It was part of the announcements of the Nova Open. And there is a bunch of cool stuff from there if you want to go check out for other systems um, and some really cool new models coming but in particular the psychic awakening stuff it's been described as a new campaign series that spans the entire galaxy which, exciting yeah exciting times indeed like apparently there are going to be expanded rules for every codex and faction and it's going to be a multi-stage release with each release focusing on a different war zone and apparently each release will include rules for at least two new factions. So it sounds to me a little bit like the Vigilus releases, like the Vigilus campaign, but with a bit more probably of a real world campaign or event running alongside it. Yeah, um, and then obviously more widespread throughout the uh, Imperium yeah, the and the uh, yeah. Imperium Nihilus. So it sounds like it's going to be a, a more galaxy-spanning event, whereas Vigilus was a very focused campaign, like set on this particular planet where we knew all like the details of the conflict down to like the continents and the uh, cities and forces involved. Whereas this is meant to be a more grander scale 
campaign and sort of like a grander scale event across the, the 40k universe and they haven't really given us any real hints as to what that is going to be yet but I think it's going to be pretty awesome whatever it is except for that pretty wicked looking plastic howling banshee oh yeah howling banshee is plastic like I've, it looks so nice and to be honest more than anything I hope that means that there's going to be more than just the howling banshees in plastic the only like, way it could be better is if it was a striking scorpion <laughs> personally speaking yeah, you don't know he might have been in that he might have been in that picture we just didn't see him there's lots obviously with not knowing exactly what it is but I'm excited for the potential of it like you say mm. you know Armageddon uh, what's happening on Baal it's, it's a whole galaxy of stuff going on and I'm excited to know what I can do I mean, to help hinder or uh, help it I, I get this feeling that it's going to be something akin to like the old Eye of Terror campaign or the um, the Medusa uh, 5 campaign yeah. But with a sort of modern day release methodology similar to the Vigilus campaign. Yeah. So, like, Vigilus did bring us new units and new data sheets. Not tons, but, you know, we've got Harkenborg Claimer, we got Marnius Calgar and his Victrix on a guard. And. Senor Abaddon. Yeah, Abaddon himself. And that sort of then, like, uh, rolled into like the Chaos Space Marine version 2.0 release, the new Space Marine Codex with like now Kalga and the, all the Shadow Spear units in it. So yeah. they've kind of like rolled them up into newer releases. But I'm guessing that this is going to be a thing where it's like, here's some Aspect Warriors for Eldar. Here's maybe um, a new Mercenary race for the Tap. Maybe here's some new clan dedicated units for Orcs. Like, yeah, Plastic you know. Valhallans, that would do it for me. If they yeah. do, um, if they did guard how they did Space Marines and broke the regiment standard supplements, it wouldn't be funny how much money I'd spend. <laughs> oh, I, I would love me a Valhallen supplement. Mm, oh, tasty. Oh, can you imagine what like a Mordian supplement would be like? That'd be brilliant thing. So, um, Posh, that's what it would be like. It's funny that you mention uh, like guard regiments because when I was comparing it to like, the Medusa campaign, that's when the Vostrian model range was first released. And, and now they're gone. And now they're gone. Yeah. Well, who knows? Maybe that's what's coming back. Maybe it's going to be plastic Austrians. <sighs> we'll just have to wait and see. <laughs> but like that's the sort of thing where, at the time, they released an entire new model range for an army without it being like a new codex release. Yeah. So, I, I don't necessarily think we're going to get, you know, like here's a new guard regiment. But you know, it might be. Here's some new rattlings for guard. Here's some new, um, I don't know, plastic gasgall. Just it's a great excuse yeah. to just you know season those little bits like oh there's that you've been asking for for ten years. Oh there's some of that that you've never seen before. Yeah. Oh look, we've uh, we've decided to primarize um, this space marine who wasn't previously a primaris, and so on. Uh, yes, maybe, primaris maybe, Pedro Cantor would be mint. Maybe this is where we see uh, like a new sculpt of Fabius Bile drop in. You know, stuff like that. There's loads of opportunities for them just to go, you know what, this guy or character or unit or whatever could just do a new model or a new imagining for the you know, current edition of the game. But we don't need to do an entire new codex for that faction just to get this unit up to, you know, up to date. 
Well, we'll do it in the Psychic Awakening. Yeah, we'll do it so, in Psychic Awakening Book 3 or whatever it may be. Yeah, so I, I'm really looking forward to it because I think f- for a little while there, I think people were thinking it was just going to be a an endless spells for 40k yeah. sort of release. And to be honest, I think that'd be cool. And I'm not ruling it out. I think it could be a release like that, but alongside it, you're going to get here's some new units and new kits for various armies and races and you know here's some new lore and environments and campaign rules so it's we're a little bit like on the cusp of momentous change i think yes i'm almost wondering whether or not this is kind of going to be the the 8.5 edition it yes, certainly feels, potentially. Yeah, it certainly feels like um, the new Space Marine Codex is like the harbinger of a new way of doing codexes. Like you say, if we get supplements for all the armies in the way that we got them for Space Marines, it would be great to see supplements for each of the craft worlds, supplements for each of the Orc clans. I would love a supplement Death Skulls. Like, if yes. I got actual match-played rules for looted wagons in my Death Skull supplement, I'd be all over that. Like, I would love it. I, I could imagine in the in the Death Skull supplement, they might not even have to write a universal supplemental looted vehicle. They could literally go, right, here's 10 data sheets. This one is looted Lehman Russ. This one is yeah. looted Predator. This, this is... <laughs> Looted light vehicle, looted medium vehicle, looted heavy vehicle, looted transport. Go from there. Here's looted night. Whoopsie doodle. <laughs> you know, and so on. But you could keep those as death skull exclusive units because they're the only ones who are that skilled at looting that the thing that they've scrapped together still vaguely resembles what it originally was. But then again, by that same argument, you could have... Um, Oh, could you imagine a Blood Axes supplement that introduced the ability to include Astra Militarum units in the way that, like, the Gene Steel Cult allows you to include Brute Brothers? That'd be great. Because it'd literally be the Blood Axes who are trading and working with, um, like, some Imperial Guard forces. <laughs> like, I forget... Like mercenary companies and things like that, those obscure bits in the 40k law where two races who would normally kill each other have worked together. Yeah, you know, here's Codex Necron supplement. It includes some blood angels that are hanging out with them. Spicy. <laughs> yeah. You know, maybe that's a leap too far. But some of it could be feasible and really cool, and that, that would be awesome. And if perhaps Psychic Awakening is the start of that, that would be awesome. Like, I wonder whether or not Psychic Awakening is going to be a bit similar to what Gathering Storm was in 7th edition. Yeah, in the build-up to the um, Return of Gullyman. Yeah, and, you know, yeah, maybe we'll get some Primarchs, that'd be nice. I'd, I mean, it feels like it's it can't be far off now. It, it feels yeah. like there must be some reinforcements for the Imperium. Someone needs to show up and contest uh, Gulliman's more or less claim to the throne. Yeah, never mind Morteri and Magnus knocking ten bells out of the Imperium. <laughs> Gulliman no, no. and Call, they're the real threats. <laughs> but yeah, like, it's... They're teasing some of the stuff for it now, but that's all it is at this point, it's teasers. 
and it seems like they're setting up for a really big momentous event in both the story and in the real world yes I don't know if it'll be like a global campaign in the style of old like the Eye of Terror or the Medusa campaign I, I don't think it will be if anything I feel like perhaps it might be more I hope it's just something brand new, something brand new yeah. and impressed yeah. to just to make everyone go, oh my god! As funny as it is, I think that's what it's going to be. Like, I, yes. I don't think we're we're going to guess it. Like I don't think we're going to get it right because I think no. it is going to be something new. You know, and that's, as long as we get I'm it just, soon, I'm not overly fussed exactly what it is. I'm hoping maybe November. I'm wondering whether, yeah, I'm wondering whether or not it's going to be their big Christmas release, essentially. You, you know, whether or not that means the release window is November onwards, but it's yeah. the thing they're going to be selling at Christmas. It'll if be between the, that and Sisters, I think. Mm, see, this is the thing. I don't think the actual Sisters range is going to be out this year. I know they said 2019. Ooh, spicy. I think it's because the announcements at the Nova Open with all the new sister stuff that looks awesome. Yeah, the big box I, with the codex and the models in. Yeah, but I think that's what it's going to be. I think essentially it's going to be um, like a battle box, you know, for sisters. So it's going to be... It's funny you say that because as soon as I found out that the codex is actually in the box, I thought, they've not done that in forever. I wonder why... I reckon it's because those are the only things that are ready to go. The yeah, stuff and then the rest shown. will come later on. Yeah, then the stuff will come in 2020. So they, they'll be out of beta codex. They will officially have their codex. They will officially have models because you can go into a Games Workshop store, ask to, be, uh, to buy Sisters of Battle, and they will be able to point to a box on the shelf. But yes. that will be the only box. And I think it'll still do well. Yeah, I think it will still do well, don't get me wrong. And the models are gorgeous, but I think the traditional full army range where they'll have a section of the shelves and multiple kits and all the rest of it, I think it'll probably be early 2020. Well, we'll have to wait and see about that. They're lovely, I like them, I'm not going to collect them. I'm... If I had the money, I would. Like, but I... uh, I don't. I don't have the spare funds yet. Like... Maybe one day in the near future, but until I get to a point where I'm building studio armies for the channel, probably not going to be getting some sisters for my personal collection just yet. Cursed adulthood, mate. Me indeed. Shrike's all right, isn't he? Oh, he's. I really like him. I, like I him love him. I think he's wicked. I I do. I totally agree that I think he was a model that you need to pay. He needs a couple of viewings and then he grows on you. I think he is very jarringly different to both what he has been previously and what pretty much any Astartes has been previously. So I do think he's something very new. But then I think that's very cool. And if if we get a range of jump pack Primaris that are even vaguely like Shrike, I think that's going to be awesome. Yes. Although, my only yeah, caveat is I really, really, really hope you can put the beaky helmet on him. It's not that I dislike the emo hair. <laughs> I actually think it looks okay as a model. But me, personally, I love the beaky helm. Yeah, I think it's a nice... Like I say, he's obviously got it on his um, grab lock to his belt, but if there's an option to 
take that off and put it on instead of the uh, Gerard Way head. That'd be amazing. And even if there isn't, hopefully it won't be a difficult head swap to achieve. I wouldn't. Get it off most Space Marine heads are normally a doll to work with. I think with some basic hobby knowledge, you'd be able to get around it. Yeah. But yeah, that's basically everything from the recent new releases. Um, we will be definitely keeping an eye on the Psychic Awakening and everything it involves. And we'll no doubt be talking about it on future episodes. And I think we're more or less there with everything. So uh, just before we head out the door, I'm not going to bother with a little uh, break. We'll just jump straight into it. But I am wanting to make a dedicated effort to including the community spotlight in each episode now. So uh, just a little short segment where we highlight and mention some of the other content creators out there on the webs or, you know, just interesting Twitter profiles or Instagrammers, just other people in the wider Warhammer community that I think we ourselves enjoy and want to share and make people aware of because they're definitely worth checking out and um i know for definite that in the past basically two weeks i've been really enjoying and getting into the uh youtube channel more hammer uh, i think those guys are doing some great work i've mentioned on a previous episode um the youtube channel grim resolve and the stuff that he's been doing with some of the like vigilus missions and stuff. And I think that's been great to see people actually doing battle reports with like the Crucible of War missions. But the Mawhammer guys, um, so that is M-O-A-R, Hammer, or one word, um, they're one of the few people that I've actually seen using the open war cards to do battle I reports. love those cards. I absolutely love them. Well, me and David discussed them on a previous episode, and I think they're a lot of fun. And uh, it just... It's really nice and refreshing to watch the power reports that aren't just the usual Eternal War, Maelstrom, or ITC stuff. Like, yeah. as a channel, they've got, um, like, it's not laser-focused, but they definitely have a a slant towards narrative play. Yeah. So, like, you know, yeah, some episodes are, you know, some of the battle reps are like Eternal War stuff, but um, a good chunk of them are like the open war cards, and I actually really like them for that. So uh, I think you should definitely go check them out. Um, they've got free, uh, free to view bat reps and stuff up on YouTube, but they do also have a actual uh, dedicated website, uh, which I think is deploymentzone.tv. Um, so if you if you're happy to uh, join their subscription service, they've got tons of content on there. I haven't had a chance to check that out myself yet, but I am very tempted. I think it's only like a five or a month and. Uh, Apparently they've got some really good narrative campaigns on there, and I'd be quite interested to you know drop a fiver on it one month, give it a try, see what I think, and who knows, I might end up getting addicted to it. <laughs> but it looks really good, so I think you should definitely go check out the Mohammer guys. Their YouTube channel is really cool. And uh, any from yourself, Chris, or would you like to use this opportunity uh, opportunity to make one last plug for your shameless, shameless push? plugging? Um, no, I've been enjoying the things that Warhammer TV have done recently. Uh, I'm looking forward to their Aeronautica Imperialis bits they're showing off. Otherwise, no, when I'm painting at home, I tend to have Spotify on with lots of angry, shouty music or uh, maybe uh, Netflix. Uh, one more at the minute. Mindhunter. Great series about serial killers. Otherwise, 
Uh, no, again, if you want to check out my media, Facebook, I'm the Unrelenting Brush Commission Painter. Instagram, I'm the underscore unrelenting underscore brush. And WordPress.com, the Unrelenting Brush, just Google that. Uh, I'm going to be doing blog contents, tutorials, frequent updates, Q&As, back and forths, top banter. Uh, and hopefully inspiring you guys to put some uh, paint on your models. And if not, send them my way, I'll do it for you. Mm-hmm. Well, let's see. If ever I'm mustering some studio armies, I might be hitting you up to help out with those. I'm sure cheesy quavers can be arranged, mate. <laughs> um, so, yeah. So, if you've enjoyed the podcast and you want to find out more, then there is plenty of places you can go. You can join us over on Facebook at the Narrative Wargamer Facebook group. I regularly post my works in progress and things from my paint station garrison starting to get a good number of people in there now and they themselves are posting their own hobby projects and it's just great and i'm really enjoying it you know we've got uh, chris and jake and dave and all the others that be on the show over there uh, plus uh hand, you know handfuls of listeners and we're hoping to get more and more over there so that's great i'm really enjoying that uh you can also find me over on instagram at narrative wargamer and over on twitter at uh, at narrative 40k so yeah definitely go check those out uh, I've not had a chance to write many recently but when I do get chance I've been trying to write some hobby articles and I'm hoping to start putting together some more uh, sort of like custom scenarios and stuff to put up over on the website which is narrativewargamer.wordpress.com uh, and I can't stress enough that you know if like Chris here you enjoy the show enough that you'd actually like to come on or have a suggestion or have any questions definitely email me at narrativewargamer at gmail.com. I'd love to hear from you. I want to hear feedback. I want to be, you know, learn what we can do with the show, how we can make it better, what you've been enjoying, what you've not been enjoying, just anything we can do to improve the show. I really, really want to make this a community-driven uh, channel and I'm looking forward to hearing from you guys. So uh, thanks again, Chris, for joining me tonight. It's been great having you on. Cheers, fam. It's been a, a great time. I thoroughly recommend anyone else who wants to get involved or bring up any topics to discuss to uh, do it. It's been a great fun, and like a, like our boy says, let's build a community, have some fun, and put our heads together for some awesome narrative content. And uh, I think we'll definitely have to have you on again in the future, Chris, so I look forward to that. No problem. Anytime, dude. Perfect. All right, guys. Thanks for listening. So definitely check out all the different places you can find more from Narrative Wargamer. And until next time, guys, discover more ways to be. Peace.